So last week, Russ, we were talking about that album, America, you know, Daniel Hope. Oh, yeah. And uh, I went to my little story about uh, West Side Story. We, you know, West Side Story, Bernstein was on there. And I mentioned that in the high school musical version that I right. was in, I was shock number three. Ah, right? Right. Well, guess what? I get an email this week from someone who was in that production. And he tells me I wasn't shark number three. I was shark number five. Wow. And I'm like... <laughs> so, And it made me mad because I was not shark number five. There were five sharks. And I was at least shark number four. But I definitely wasn't shark number five. Wow. Okay. So uh, I just want to, uh, you know, I just want to say, you know, he's... Uh, <laughs> my, my my good name is being smeared here. I was either shark number three or shark number four. I was not not shark number five. I know who shark number five was because he was terrible, and I'm not going to say who it, what his name was. So this person <laughs> from way back when was listening to the podcast. Yes, he was. That's pretty amazing. Go figure. Yeah, I think that's I think that's all that listens. <laughs> I don't know why he's listening to the. Maybe he got word that I kind of, you know, oh. I was I was kind of. He he thought I was um, raising my uh, my level in uh, as a shark in West Side Story. Oh. Your, th you know? your theater days live on. Yeah, it's they do. Huh? They just never go away. Wow. But you know what I think? You know what I think? Um, I think it's just he's just jealous because I am a podcasting superstar, while he's just some guy. He's which some in the real guy. world really makes him a higher level person <laughs> but, where is he but, where, where is he listening I think regular from? guy is higher level than podcasting superstar where is he listening from uh from new york of course new york oh, okay yeah yeah where he's some guy where this in, happened he's probably still in, in staten york. island i have no idea okay which kind of says something about him because i've i've moved on to kyoto japan i'm exotic you certainly are. <laughs> that's why. That's, that's what why the we, lady. That's what the yeah. ladies say. <laughs> you, 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 uh, you do have an, some exotic quality to you. It must be why I've, you know, stayed friends with you all these years. Yeah, we need to. Uh, we need to get on. We need to put this podcast on video so that the rest of the audience can enjoy that exotic. <laughs> enjoy quality. your exotic quality. You're right. Mm. All right. So anyway, I'm I'm just here to say, yeah, maybe I was shark number four, but not shark number five. There it is. It's out there. Go ahead, right back to me. <laughs> this guy <laughs> who's uh, who's bothering me on email. <laughs> well, you're definitely in the top three sharks that I know. So yeah, I, I yeah. know. I I think so. I I got to dance. Okay, and uh, they taught me some cool moves. Yeah. In West Side Story, I got to do the cool. I got to do the cool gang walk, you know, with the snaps and the more on the, that the jump. Yeah, later in the podcast. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, I can't oh, wait. Yeah. There's anyway, be more, huh? Mm, <laughs> Listen, okay. Listeners who tuned in last week know what we're talking about. Uh, others yeah, will say, "What are they talking about?" Anyway, we're just giving a little continuity from yeah. uh, the uh, narrative from episode to episode. You're listening to. Adult music, uh, episode yeah, Thanks 56. for reminding me because um, I, I really did forget. <laughs> this is uh, the <laughs> podcast with uh, what we say music for the mature mind, uh, bringing you recent classical and jazz releases every week. Something new to listen to. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, some other commentary too uh, about Mike's uh, brief musical career. My my brief career as a theater person. Well, theater not person. You know, in high yeah. school. That's not that doesn't really count. 
You know, <laughs> you know the funny thing is you have to you have to dance in West Side Story, and th- there right. aren't any high school boys that can dance. So we learned like from nothing, which is kind of cool. So you can do that later on. That's what made me play in bands because I I figured oh I could learn to dance from nothing. I could learn to play an instrument from nothing too. So I played the bass. You know, I, I couldn't quite learn to play the guitar up to the level of some people who were in college with me. So I kind of went to the bass, and you know, no, you always need a know. bass player. People you always are always that, looking well, for a bass player, right? And and you get good really quick because you wind up playing in all these different bands because right. nobody has a bass player. You know, it's kind of, everybody wants to play the guitar and be the star. But yeah. actually, you're kind of a star at the time, though. Sting was really big, right? Mm. The Police, and um, so you know it was cool to be a bass player. Like reggae was kind of you know popular at the English beat and all that stuff. So I always um, thought a lot of the better songwriters were bass players. I mean, you got Paul McCartney, Brian right. Wilson. Uh, yeah. I like that band from Scotland too. What were they? Delamitri, Justin Curry. Uh, Delamitri, wow. Yeah. They, you know, bass players, you know, they write from that pivot down below. So they see the harmonic movement differently right. and uh yeah they built yeah, i guess like they built that. from the bottom they up, built from they the bottom of, up. Yeah. yeah yeah they see different possibilities yeah so hmm. so yeah they're kind of interesting songwriters that way yeah yeah well we're gonna build from the bottom up tonight with uh, lots of <laughs> we new certainly music are. yeah <laughs> and uh before we get going here i just want to remind the listeners uh, in the episode description uh all the music we'll talk about you can find uh links to well not i should let me backtrack on that there's one album here that is uh, not quite available on streaming yet, I think. Uh, this weird label. But we'll talk about that anyway. For most of the music, you're going to find links to Spotify and Apple Music, uh, except for the one. And also, at the top of the description, there's a link to all the music in one place. That's a full episode playlist on Deezer, our streaming platform uh, of choice, where you can follow us at uh, username Adult Music Podcast. You can catch the playlist and the podcast there uh, all in one spot. Uh, whatever platform you happen to be listening to us on or whatever app, uh, if you don't see the full description or the links aren't active, uh, you can always check us out on our host site, Podbean, where you can follow all the links to the music and other resources. Now, if you enjoy the podcast tonight, please do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. Uh, If you take a moment to give us a ranking or write a review, that helps us get listed in the recommended browsing categories for music commentary, which helps us grow our audience. And I do have to say, for the first time in a while, we've been in both the Apple and Podbean recommendations. So very nice. Thanks to listeners maybe, for maybe that. Maybe it's because yeah, maybe it's because people are noticing the new neon uh, <laughs> logo. Could be that, that glowing we have. neon logo. Yeah, it really stands out. I really like it. Yeah, it's kinda, thanks you know. to uh, Fast Signs Staten yeah. Island for that yeah. new logo. Yeah, and, nice uh, work, guys. Yeah. Hmm. Also, uh, if you'd want to uh, look us up and uh, you want to see our handsome mugs, you can uh, come over <laughs> to uh, our Facebook page. Uh, we've yeah. got a Facebook page. Look for Adult Music Podcast. You can also leave a message or comment there. And uh, if you want to contact us directly uh, with more content or questions, comments, we'd like to hear from you by email as well. Reach us at Adult Music Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Yeah, go to the go to the uh, website and and imbibe my exotic look. Yeah, <laughs> check that out. <laughs> oh boy! All right. Anyway, 
So where right. are we? Are, are we, we going to uh, start tonight? Um, let me see. Was there some, uh, okay? There was there was um, okay. There was Bernstein. Did I want to say anything else? I don't remember now. Nah, I got. That's all I got. Okay, I guess we're just gonna get right into it. And uh, going back to Baroque, I really like to start with Baroque. Um, so I've got one for this weekend. I've got some coming up, but I'm not really ready for the other ones yet. But uh, tonight we have rather a uh, speaking of exotic. A rather exotic uh, recording here, um, um, called um, "Quid est veritas los músicos de su alteza." Let me sort those languages out for you. <laughs> "Quid est veritas" is Latin, and they're the words of Pontius Pilate to Jesus: "What is truth?" Okay, and then "Los músicos de su alteza." The this is Spanish now. The music of uh, his. Uh, his Highness, I guess, or some or something like that. Some mm. his high level person, and um, the artist on this. It's not an it's an ensemble, but they're in, listed as individuals. Um, there's a soprano Olala Aleman who we heard already actually in the um, Melancholia recording, but she sang from last. I guess it was November, but it was late last year. We talked mm. about that recording, and it was kind of a brooding Baroque album. And she was with a different ensemble there. This is a completely different. Ensemble and really um, album. The harpsichord, organ, and artistic director are all uh, Luis Antonio Gonzalez. So it's a Spanish ensemble. And uh, a few other uh, musicians on this, Pablo Prieto on violin, Eduardo Fenol, I hope that's right, on violin, Pedro Reula on cello and viola da gamba, Miguel Rincon on chitarone, the big guitar, that's what that means, and Alfonso Sebastian on the chamber organ. Chitarone. Um, I like the way that sounds. Chitarone, yeah. <laughs> hey, what do you play? Hey, I hey. play the chitarone. <laughs> it kind of sounds, like yeah. sounds like a kind of pasta. Yeah, he's got a chitarone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. boy, that, that's, keep it, that's in line with our uh, new logo. That, yeah, uh, I like that. that. Uh, expression there, yeah. Let me see if I got this guy. Yeah, Fenol. It is Fenol. Okay, Eduardo Fenol. So they're they're Spanish, and um, this is rather a a, a different take on uh, a lot of this music. It's early um, it's early Baroque. So when we say early Baroque, we generally mean Italian Baroque. So it's going to be Monteverdi and people from that era. Um, <laughs> okay. So what is truth after Pontius Pilate? I'm wondering if I should even mention this because this is a friend, an idea a friend of mine and I had. I'm not going to mention who it is because I don't know if he wants you to know. But we're always looking for some kind of, you know, we work here in um, Japan teaching and uh, the podcast is one of our, um, you know, kind of escapes things. If we can make this happen, we'll we'll just do this. Um, I have another uh, idea. Um, and exercise gym you know which kind of deals with like pilates you know but we call it pontius pilates you know work out like a roman pontius pilates what do you think <laughs> we don't Torture have crucifixes in the background or anything do we yeah <laughs> oh boy we have stained glass. It'd be great. Anyway, that's that's one of my ideas. I shouldn't be making these jokes during Lent. That's terrible. Anyway, well, you know what is the phrase they have now is is what live your truth, right? So, oh, live your truth. Yeah, your okay. truth. I hate that yeah. phrase. You know, as if there are multiple truths. You know, so. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Now, now he's kind of a 
in my mind now because you get you know all those um scriptural readings from this time of year anyway that's good that's the good. body positive gym there you go the Pontius body positive Pilates. gym yeah. Pontius Pilates <laughs> or we could make it Pontius Pilates and make it a boxing gym you could do that too yeah, we could do that and yeah. you could have like the Pilates and the, the boxing that'd be good yeah. <laughs> anyway anyone out there who uh, makes a fortune on this you're welcome okay we uh, you know give us give us some uh, royalties for that <laughs> 5% is fine you can have the rest alright anyway <laughs> That's what we request. We'll just humbly request yeah. that. We're not going to sue you. you. You can take your ideas, though. No problem. They're all free. They're all out there for you. <laughs> okay. Uh, by the way, the Melancholia album was on Pentatone. This particular album, um, Quides Veritas, is on IBS Classical is the label. And I don't know much about this label, really. I'm assuming it, I looked it's it Spanish. Up. Yeah. It's hard to find. And yeah, uh, it's not on streaming and... Uh... Yeah, we couldn't yeah, get this so. on Deezer. And uh, is it on Spotify? No, Apple? no, couldn't okay, find so it anywhere. Okay, so we're gonna—you guys are gonna have to buy this one, I guess. I'll put the link to the uh, IBS website so you can okay. at least yeah. find the details of it. Okay, and yeah, it's worth hearing. Um, let me just give you a little description, and you can see whether you want to think about this. All right, first of all, there's the booklet notes. I've been one of the nice things about I have all these CDs, and um, I've been really relying mostly on CDs for this podcast. I collect them anyway because I'm a complete nutcase. And um, the the, the C- <laughs> classical CD notes are kind of like classical CD album covers where some of them really do go off the wall and really don't work. And this is really one of those. This one's half <laughs> – this one's okay, you know, they, but there's some pretty pretentious nonsense in it. Um, you know, as someone – as a teacher and sort of a music scholar, um, I, I like to kind of – make things clear, right? And a lot of these booklet notes go off in these <laughs> bizarre <laughs> directions. Now, obviously, some of them are like translated from another language. I don't know. Maybe they use Google Translate and the words just aren't there. But sometimes they just don't make much sense at all. And there's sort of like a, a fad for this in the arts in general, or there was when I was younger. And I, I guess this is just the residual thing. Um, anyone out there wants clear booklet notes, uh, give us a yeah, send us an email because we can do it, and <laughs> you know, we're really good at this. Okay, the booklet notes go uh, they're in, uh, go into an essay because the album is called Quid Is Veritas, What Is Truth? Uh, Pilate's, I can't want to say Pilates now, Pilate's <laughs> Question to Jesus. <laughs> that that always confused me because they call it Pilates. Why? Where did, where did that name come from? They just, anyway... All right, there's an essay about truth that includes Italian and Latin quotations with no translations to English. I guess they want you to type them into Google Translate and figure <laughs> them out. Yeah, thanks thanks for the uh, – thanks. I, I bought your CD. You're not going to give me translations? <laughs> Come on, man. All right. Um, yeah, why should I have to tra- type them out and, and figure out what they mean? Uh, there's a lot of name-dropping of obscure Renaissance-era thinkers <laughs> – in the booklet I didn't know who they were Mm. you know but uh, when we get to the music we read that all the composition offer glimpses of truth some of it not flattering and a lot of it kind of has to do with with love yeah there's kind of like I picked up a line just for you in here oh did you okay I bet I know it well I don't know that I know what it is but I might have picked it up myself because I picked up a few okay a lot of them are about people who know how they will suffer in the future (laughs) (laughs) A lot of these songs. This is going to be a an up, not an upbeat album, but it is really enjoyable. It's 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 really good music. We should remember that composers from this era used their music as a vehicle of the message, an interpretation of the text. So, 
at this point in the Baroque era, you didn't really have these extended instrumental works like you had at the end of the Baroque era with Handel and especially Bach. Um, they, or even Vivaldi. The, the, that was all new at the time. The whole idea that you could sustain interest for three minutes or more with purely instrumental music because they had to figure out a way to get it to hold together, to make it make sense to people. And they did this through structural means. Okay, they were, the way the harmony works and the sections of the music, which, which evolved over time. Um, but in this case, um, the music is is kind of supporting the message of the text. It's sort of rhetorical. Like it'll often echo like an idea that comes from the music. And this happens a lot in opera, even in like as late as Handel, where you'll hear like um, like somebody will say, um, you know, I want I want revenge. And you'll hear the violins go, da -da, da -da -da. you know, they're kind of like giving you the feeling of this, mm. what this person's feeling in their, in their chest, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> and we get some of that here. Okay, the recording was made in Santo Domingo Church in Daroca, Zaragoza, in Aragon, Spain, in August 2018. And it just came out this year, so it's, we've, they've been sitting on this for about four years. Understandable, I guess. It's a small label, and then there was the pandemic. Um, and the organ on this album, not the chamber organ, please, there's a, there's a full organ too, but it's not like a giant, you know, you know, huge church organ. It's smaller and, yeah, and older. It, sort of, it sneaks mm. in and out uh, without yeah. creating a huge presence on these tunes. I found. Yeah, yeah. I want to mention, by the way, the 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 really powerful, big, gigantic organs that you hear. There are one or two of those in Europe, but they're all in all of those out organs are in America. They these these things are like are like supersonic jets or something. <laughs> the ones they made in the USA. <laughs> they're I don't know. They just kind of. I guess it's the whole American thing with technology, mm. but these these organs where you can like if you push the uh, the bass pedal all the you know down at a full volume volume the the entire church will crumble around it. <laughs> <laughs> the, that kind of power, right? You don't get those out of organs in these European churches. I went into like some of the churches in Paris; they can do that. They have bigger organs, like the Notre Dame organ, which incidentally has been restored. It's uh, oh, ready cool. for use again, it looks like. So I'm really happy about that. Uh, the Cavaille Col organ in Notre Dame in Paris is back in action. Uh, that's a that's a big, powerful organ. I was uh, mm. one of the one of the things I miss about Europe and spending time there, and you can't even do this in America, which is too, which is a shame, is walking into these very old churches. And often, if you're in a big city, for example, especially like Paris, um, which has so many like churches with great organs, like Saint Eustace, Notre Dame, a lot of them. Um, students from the conservatory will give free concerts on these organs at like around 5 p.m., hmm. like on Wednesdays. And they do it because, you know, they need time to get on the organ to see how it's going to work. And, yeah. you know, so you can just walk into a church and hear this organ concert for free. And it's just spectacular because, the yeah. you know, it's just a wonderful thing to be able to do. <laughs> you know, there's nothing <laughs> like that here in Japan or really in the U.S. where we're from either. Um, which is which is kind of a shame. I guess you could hear the monks chanting here. I do walk through temple grounds. You hear them. Yeah, the harmony's not sometimes. quite the same. But. <laughs> no, but it's it, <laughs> it it'll give you instant enlightenment if you uh, catch it the right way. Anyway, okay. So the organ that we're talking about here, it's a little smaller, and it's a historic instrument by Bartolome Sanchez, um, made in 1742, and it has a peculiar temperament. Um. Which, which I think uh, he, by he means the tuning 
Okay, by temperament. Yeah, it's okay. um, so like tempered, like box the well tempered mm. clavier. He's writing these works. It's for, a bad tempered um, clavier. <laughs> Yeah, the bad tempered clavier. <laughs> is that a PDQ Bach work? Yeah, yeah. The that probably Could is be the a PDQ Bach work. Yeah, I think that, I think probably the bad tempered clavier. <laughs> yeah, um, but you know what, what they mean by temperament is, it, if you hear a modern piano, it's equal tuning, so the distance between all the notes is absolutely equal. But that wasn't the that's not natural. Uh, they're kind of fudging the the tuning a little bit to make that happen. What actually happens in well temperament is it's being measured by frequencies, and I think um, you know you'll have the true note values for each of the notes. But what what happens is once you get into uh, changing keys and things like you have a home key, and if you start changing mm -hmm. keys and going to other keys, they start getting more and more sort of um, well, they're not out of tune, but they sound a little more not pure let's say mm -hmm. all right as as you get away from the the key that the the temper tuning is right. is made in now what's cool about that is you kind of have this idea of how far away um from the tuning you are and when you hear string quartets uh, string quartets can do this but they tend to adjust to make it all sound equal um so it, it's kind of cool you can tell how far away from the home key you are when you're um mm -hmm. when you're playing on one of these old keyboards that has well temperament um, which I think is very cool, actually. But we're so used to uh, the piano's even equal temperament. What the piano is tuned with is equal temperament now, it's called, mm. okay? Uh, but well-tempered well is a different thing. Okay. Okay, we also hear a more modern chamber organ by Jose Maria Arizabalaga in La Frasquez de Valle, 1985, made in 1985. And there's also an Italian harpsichord by Alan Gotto, from Nor Nor Norwich in England, I guess, 1983. All right. The musicians go, it says here, the musicians go for their own truth. Speaking of having oh, your geez. own truth oh, in no. these interpretations, been that's watching what the Oprah. notes say. That's not me. They've, They've been, been watching, watching Oprah. Oprah. <laughs> yeah. It's your truth. I guess in the arts, you can say that. I think it's, a, you know, this is yeah. my interpretation, my truth. Okay. And don't rely on tradition. Now, this is a welcome... Uh, thing because uh, because if you're listening to recordings and everybody's playing according to tradition all the recordings are going to sound the same um yeah. i get this question a lot in classical music whereas like you know if you hear like uh, you know beethoven's fifth symphony once you have one recording isn't that enough you know but they're not all the same they're they are different right. and i'm trying to kind of put that across a little bit on this podcast as we go um and especially as time goes by uh, performing sort of um, techniques and traditions tend to change too. So the way we hear things is a lot different. One of the more interesting things is to compare um, recordings of, say, Beethoven now, and this is because of the new Baron Writer edition with Beethoven, like in the 1980s, and they're a lot faster now. Mm. And I think a lot of that has to do with some of it has to do with the new scholarship, but a lot of it also has to do with. Um, it also has to do with the feel of period instruments, but it also has to do with the fact that we just live in a faster moving society now and people just have this, you know, kind of tempo in their step, I guess, you know, and that's just what comes out. Mm -hmm. um, I think in Beethoven's time, like before there were motors and cars, you know, they, 
things were just slow. And I bet the music, if we go back to that time, um, the music would all sound really slow to us. <laughs> but it would probably be very natural and fit in with the rhythms of life at the time to the people who lived then. All right. Anyway, the musicians are trying to bring out the truth of the discourse. Well, let's see how they do. Well, I, wish I should play this for you, really, because you're not going to be able to hear it on your own. But you can check it out. Okay, the first piece is by uh, Benedetto Ferrari. Uh, 1603 to 1681, and this piece is called Amanti Io Vi So Dire, which means, lovers, I can tell you. And what he wants to tell you is, it is far better to flee from any beautiful and graceful woman. <laughs> oh, what a way to start an album. <laughs> okay. This is the one where I picked up the message for you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you want to, okay. Okay. Go ahead. And and in the end, yeah, a beautiful woman never offers roses without thorns. Oh yes, uh, that's good. There you go. Yeah, and also true. <laughs> okay, well, that's why the the rose is the symbol of love because it's got that beautiful scent and it's red like passion, but it's got those thorns that make you bleed too yes. when you hold mm -hmm. it. Yeah. All right. Um, okay, I actually love. Um, Olala Aleman's um, Spanish-sounding tone and her phrasing. Um, it's like her native Spanish language inflection has crept into her tone. So she's got a darker... She's labeled as a soprano, but she's got this kind of darkness to her tone. It's a, she, she, doesn't ever, she never sounds like a, a tweeting bird, which a lot of sopranos do. Um, <laughs> okay, it's... Yeah, this language inflection is in her tone, but it's not in her pronunciation of the Italian texts, which sounds Italian, uh, very compelling. So it's kind of like a Spanish sounding voice and this mm. Italian sounding like accent. It's really odd. Uh, most sopranos will sing this in a bright tone, but she's got a darkness to her voice that sounds more like a mezzo's. Uh, she does get up into the higher ranges of the soprano too. So she's definitely a soprano. And here she's in a really good mood, despite the uh, name of the, um, or, or the text that she's singing. Um, this is kind of a an upbeat track, okay? Uh, far different from the Melancholia album, which interested me right away because the Melancholia album is all really dark. <laughs> and, um, this is a lot lighter here. Okay, so I was curious to hear what you would sound like on this. Okay, this is accompanied by a strumming guitar until the last verse when a harpsichord takes over, which is also kind of interesting. This song is charming with funny lyrics for the time. Okay, maybe you won't think they're funny if you hear them now, but if you kind of put yourself back 400 years, you know, these lyrics would have charmed that audience, you know, who are all concerned with court intrigues and stuff like that. Um, I know from experience that the hope of pleasure is founded on torment, she sings. Beauty and courtesy do not usually go together. If you don't believe me, all the worse for you. <laughs> oh boy, this is quite a text. I would, li I'd give this a listen. At least try to find it on YouTube, you know, or something. You know, maybe someone else, someone else is singing it, or maybe you can get her singing it there. Who knows? It's ch it's a charming song and still has the ring of truth four hundred years later. <laughs> what really ar arrests you is the uh, in this tune and in a couple other ones is the kind of unusual pitch drops in the vocal yeah. part, you know, that just fall off and sort of, you're not really prepared for that because uh, you don't hear that uh, in later Baroque music or other music so much. And it's kind of disarming to have this sort of 
you know, falling like glissando of uh, yeah. of a voice, uh, and it breaks the sort of uh, harmonic charm of it, uh, and sort of slaps you across the face <laughs> with the point <laughs> of the message. So I thought that was right. kind of interesting. Yeah. All right. Next we have Maurizio Cazzati. It's <laughs> an interesting name. Uh, <laughs> he, we hear a Sinfonia by him, which is an instrumental uh, work. It, this has a uh, long, drawn-out chords on the lower strings, accompanying a quicker melody on higher strings, with harpsichord continuo. It sounds very elegant. Yeah, it's a, it's pretty brief too. Mm. Then we have another piece by Cazzati, La Verità Sprezzata, the Truth Despised. Which was written just yesterday. No, I mean, it could have been. <laughs> uh, truth is personified in this text and complains. Truth is complaining about the contempt and neglect she suffers. Oh, if only she could come back now. Yeah, truth is always um, um, uh, presented as a woman. Um, she's rela- I think there's a relation to wisdom. And in the Old Testament Proverbs, wisdom is presented as a woman as well. Mm. She's like a person or like a some kind of like lower level um deity or something. Okay. Uh this piece this piece becomes across as a bit of a highly extended uh, recitative or recitative. I want to say this the English way, recitative. The voice is fairly naked through the first part. Naked meaning there's no uh instrumental kind of clothing on it. She's just singing not quite a cappella, but Mm. Very, very sparse, sparse um, yeah. accompaniment, yeah. With only discrete harpsichord accompaniment. Very pretty, by the way. When the text gets more dramatic and rhetorical in the middle, the harpsichord comes in more fully to accentuate that. All right, now, one issue I had with this album is Olala's tone doesn't change, all right? She's one of these singers who... Uh, she's She's always singing the same tone. So what they've done to sort of make the album interesting is change the instrumental arrangements that she's singing mm. that, that are accompanying her. So a lot of the interest in this album, the thing that's going to really draw your attention in is going to be the uh, the instrumental playing and the combinations of instruments that are used. Remember, at this era, the composer isn't necessarily saying what instrument has to play which part. It, it, you continuo, the bass could be anything. It could be a harpsichord, it could be a guitar, it could be an organ. Um, so it, it's not so strict. Um, so they're, they're going to do that. Um, so yeah, so as far as um, singing goes, she's got a really nice voice, as I mentioned in when I talked about track one. I liked it a lot, but I kind of wish... She could change her tone a little bit. She does at certain points. I'll get to that. Mm. But um, it's we mostly get this kind of like Spanish-sounding, darkish tone. And it's very appealing, but you kind of want a bit of variety as, as the album goes on. Next, we have the great Claudio Monteverdi, Ecco di dolce raggi il sole armato. Um, here, we learn that love may make one suffer, but there are compensating pleasures... And the uh, singer in this one decides to uh, indulge in those. Mm. Uh, good for her. <laughs> okay, this piece <laughs> is accompanied by a harpsichord. Yeah, that's that's the decision I would make too. I have to say, oh, uh, it's going to be torture, but it, it's it's an Italian thing too. They like to <laughs> talk about the thorn, but the pleasure is going to be so good that you know the piercing of the thorn is going to be worth it. Okay, accompanied here by harpsichord and a string instrument, which I think is the chitarone, uh, Russ's favorite instrument. <laughs> favorite name for an chitarone. instrument. Chitarone. Anyway. <laughs> chitarone. 
Maybe I'll tell some girl that that's my name. Hi, yeah. I'm uh, Angelo Kitarone. <laughs> Come over to my studio. I've got a big Kitarone. <laughs> God. Oh, boy. This, this podcast is getting more adult all the time, isn't it? Okay. Um, in this piece, I missed a bit of lightness in the voice. I really... This one would have been better sa- um, sung by a lighter sounding voice because it's kind of a... It's talking about something light, right? And a lot of these um, Baroque era um, tunes or these um, arias or songs, or you see canzoni, um, kind of the the voice or the this, the sound of the instruments is really, like we said, rhetorical. So if the voice is light and bright, it's going to give you a light and bright feeling. And the um, lyrics here, the text is pretty bright. Um, anyway... Onwards to track five, again, Monteverdi, Lasciatemi Morire. This is the famous Lamento, the Lament of Ariana, which is the only surviving part of a lost opera, and it's pretty famous. I really wish... You know, I keep hoping one day some scholar is going to dig up this opera from some <laughs> somewhere in some long-lost uh, yeah, like castle an, or something. A wine know? jug in some kind of uh, yeah. buried, you know, Yeah, but all we have of it... Yeah, all we have of it is the um, lament, and it's a really, uh, well, a spectacular piece for the time. Again, our ears are a bit jaded. We really have to put ourselves back into that era in order to really appreciate this Mm. fully. Um, Monteverdi was excellent at, um, um, you know, how would you say, rhetorical sort of um, uh, writing in his music. Okay, so it's interesting to hear this accompanied by only a harpsichord and chitarrone <laughs> with occasional chamber organ uh, coming in. Uh, when Ariana mentions, speaking of rhetoric, uh, when Ariana mentions how happy Teseo will be when he arrives at Athens, the key is major, and then it turns to the darker minor when she expresses her, her own situation, stranded on Naxos, left by Theseus, Teseo as he uh, moves on to Athens. Uh, this is a 10-minute piece, and it needs more variety of tone. This is really where the um, the soprano is found a bit wanting, because the uh, her mood changes a lot, as happens often in a Baroque era. You always... The, the whole rule of Western art in general is contrast, and that's especially clear in Baroque sing- era singing. Like, you'll be angry, but then you'll be, like, lamenting your fate, and then you'll be angry again. You want you, They're always doing sort of things like that. This aria is full of that, and I felt like a little change of um, vocal tone would have been hmm. welcome. Some kind of variety of phrasing would have been good, too. I mean, she sings this pretty straight. It's a nice voice, but it's a long piece, and there's a lot of variety in it, and I felt like she could have added to that. Hmm. Okay, a lot of the sections end with these drawn-out weeping-type figures in the accompaniment and vocal. This is kind of what you were talking about, the yeah. kind of descending glissando here. And uh, she kind of sings them all the same. Um, but again, that's that's part of the rhetoric, so she's sad, so you get this uh, kind of, mm. you know, tone from the... Uh, that's, that's part of the rhetoric that's accentuating the emotion in the Baroque era. It was pretty simple then. It got more complicated later. Okay, anyway... Next, Monteverdi again. We get four pieces in a row by Monteverdi. This is the third. This is called Ete Pur Dunque Vero, which is, uh, it, it is therefore true, okay, which is w- what this means. Again, a, a, song, a tune with v- vero or true in the title. 
Veritas, vero. A welcome brighter key here and a change in energy from the singer. So that he, she changes up a little bit here, which was nice. Strings come in to play a melody and lift the piece a bit. And uh, Almares responds to this positively. Okay, so I think the singer is really picking up from the accompaniment, you know, her energy. I like how she hits the harsh passing dissonances with some volume in order to make us aware of them. I like when that happens because it, it hurts so good. You know, it's kind of like the pain of love right there, that dissonance, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, some people say that uh, <laughs> love is love is just a lifetime of pain, I guess, but I don't know. <laughs> anyway, Claudio Monteverdi again, quel sguardo sdegnosetto, that uh, sdegno, like disrespecting, I don't know, uh, look, or that um, disdainful look, I guess would be sdegnosetto. This is another tune where the singer demonstrates through words and musical accompaniment that the pleasure of love is worth the pain. Um, it's a lively work with soprano reaching in to her high end. She's reaching for her high end. And the guitars and strings accompanying with discrete harpsichord. Okay, next we get into some composers that uh, I've really grown to like over the years because um, we've heard a lot of their harpsichord recordings um, have been unearthed and are recorded. Next one is Tarquinio Merula. I have an entire album of his uh, um, works for harpsichord and organ, and I love it. It's great. This one is a vocal work, Orche Tempo di dormire uh, now that it's time to sleep I guess guess what that's about actually no no it's not about that this is a uh, spiritual song uh, it's a canzone spirituale sopra alla nanna which is a bedtime song and the uh, the people singing this song uh, Mary the mother of Jesus is singing it to Jesus the baby Jesus okay we hear the rocking of the cradle represented by a two note ostinato played 162 times <laughs> That's one for every game of baseball season. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, in the song, the lyrics, Mary, okay, this is pretty appropriate for uh, the time of year here. Mary foresees the passion and asks heaven to be silent before the dream of truth. Um, heaven is rather sacrilegiously depicted with the lowest notes the vocalist sings. Wow. Okay. Heaven mm. is usually... Yeah. yeah, we think of it as being up there somewhere, and uh, it's usually depicted in music with high notes, but not here. Interesting. The rocking accompaniment has an odd dissonance in the second note, indicating that something is off, and I'm guessing that's going to be Mary's worry. So she's foreseeing Jesus' passion and death. And it's her baby. You know, she doesn't want that to happen. Uh, there's a disturbance in the heart of the vocalist. Uh, Mary tells Jesus to sleep peacefully now because torture and horror... Or in his future. Uh, the rocking mm. stops in the last verse as the Madonna decides to contemplate her sleeping child. It's actually a pretty moving work. I rather enjoy it. Yeah, it's it. very hypnotic and has a kind of eerie kind of yeah. quality that keeps you uh, on yeah. ease a little bit. Too. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's it's a little bit of an uneasy work, even even though it's a baroque work and the uh, mm. the harmony is you know by our standards rather. I don't want to say basic. It's never basic, but simple. Mm. It's uncomplicated, let's say. Mm. Okay. Next, we have uh, Giovanni Felice Sanses. He's Spanish. Sanses, S-A-N-C-E-S. I don't know if that's the right pronunciation, but this is a Stabat Mater. 
Uh, Stabat Mater is the uh, is Mary, Jesus' mother, standing by the cross. Okay, Stabat Mater, the mother standing. Um, Dolorosa, suffering. So she's 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 looking at Jesus dying on the cross, and it's her. It's a description of her. This has been this this poem has been set many many times. Uh, in fact, we may have a, a the, the famous Pergolesi setting of this prayer um, coming up soon because there's a new recording of that. There have been a few in recent years, actually. But this one is by uh, Giovanni Felice Sanses. And the previous work, the one about uh, Mary singing the, um, the uh, lullaby or the bedtime song to Jesus, um, it melts into this one. There's no real pause between the two... Um, mm pieces here the change is almost unnoticed between the two tunes is almost unnoticeable and of course i mean they weren't written to be played like this so it's kind of a neat uh decision by the ensemble we finally get to hear the fantastic unique sound of the church organ on this track uh the vocal quality changes at this point to having a lot of reverb on it or room noise it could be the echo of the church because they're in this Mm. church now um, I guess this part was spliced into the performance as the singer and accompaniment had to squeeze into the tiny church where the organ is. It's not that the church is too small for people, but it's too small for the recording equipment. So they were all kind of crammed in there, <laughs> all right, in, in order to mic up the organ and the church the way it's all set up. Uh, the notes say it was difficult to record here, and we're going to have to let this oddity in the recorded quality go due to the circumstances. We should be glad to hear this organ. It's got an individual sound, and I like the repeating line it plays throughout this work. It's comforting, like a reassuring hand on one's shoulder as the prayer progresses. All right, we get an instrumental next, Maurizio Cazzati again. We've heard him before. Uh, Passacaglia, that's a repeating bass line over which there are a set of very varied improvisations. This is a really lovely work, a real gem. Uh, with the descending line and gentle melody, not unlike the theme in Pachelbel's canon. It kind of reminded me a little bit of that. Um, it's not a canon, though. Actually, I'm not entirely sure that Pachelbel's canon should be called a canon, although that's what he called it, I guess. Because it's really a Pasacalia, or at least it has a Pasacalia bass. And the upper voices are all in canon with each other, but the bass isn't. So I feel like the structure of that piece is really a Pasacalia and not a canon. Um... My my brother once uh, wrote to me and he asked me, uh, you know, what would be a good piece to play for the bride's like, you know, entry music at the um, at a wedding, and you know he gave me the usual choices: Mendelssohn, Pachelbel, you know, those the things they always use, or Wagner. Here come you know, here here comes the bride basically, and um, I told him that. Um, it's bet you know you're not really you don't really want to wow the crowd with your <laughs> musical choices. I mean they're there to to see how beautiful the bride is, and they just you know you you want to just go with tradition. I think at a wedding, but if anyone wants to try something different, this would be an interesting piece to program. Hmm. It sounds a lot like Pachelbel's Canon, and I think it's suitable for hmm. a wedding. Maurizio Cazzati, Pasacaglia, check it out. Okay, hmm. it's a brief, reassuring work. I think yeah it. It's a nice processional for bride because it's slow, but yeah. it has motion. So it doesn't, yeah. you know, it just moves along. And the string arranging sounds are very pretty. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I could see so that anyway, working. Yeah. You can see that as a substitute for the Pachelbel Canon. I'll keep that in mind for when you tie the knot, Mike. Yeah, right. That's going to be happening soon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, 
last piece, Claudio Monteverdi, Si Dolce e il Tormento. I bet you can guess what that means. Um, uh, so sweet is the suffering or torment. <laughs> Only Italians think like this. You, you know? Oh, the way you make me suffer is so sweet. Oh, man. All right. This is a lovely work with an appealing, catchy, descending melodic pattern. Really nice. Anyway, it's an appealing program, and the focus is on the rhetoric of the music. The album is beautifully programmed for variety. I mentioned I would have liked to hear more variety of tone and approach in Alamon's singing, but the focus here is more on the compositions and putting their musical rhetoric across. An enjoyable listen on period instruments and with a great organ in the Stabat Mater by Giovanni Felice Sanses. So I'd recommend this, but you're going to have to, you know, kind of, you're probably going to have to buy it. Maybe you could hear like some fragments of it on YouTube. Check it out. Yeah. I noticed when I looked it up uh, on the site, which I'll put the link for, they do have it available through some platforms, but they're very limited and it doesn't include any of the major uh, streaming platforms. They're not listed uh, there. It's sort of uh, more obscure resources for uh, hmm music downloads and whatnot. So I don't think we'll see it show up on uh, Apple and Spotify anytime soon. Anyway, I, I enjoyed it. I like the sparse instrumentation that sort of mm. served the message. Uh, I got a real kick out of reading the lyrics in translation. <laughs> they were fun, the, yeah. The suffering of uh, love. Oh. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's not so different from uh, looking at uh, social media posts and... Uh, <laughs> tabloids today so uh, we haven't learned anything uh, well some of us have but uh, <laughs> so, but when Italians say this stuff though they, they think it's a good thing today everybody just wants to make everybody else suffer it's just really yeah. horrible I uh, found the, the voice a bit overpowering sometimes in contrast mm -hmm. to the sparse in instrumentation but I, you know overall I liked it and uh, those sort of uh, mournful uh, as I said voice drops in pitch and things uh, which we don't you know hear in a lot of works uh, I thought were kind of arresting uh, mm. and interesting. So, yeah, uh, interesting music of the period. Uh, I liked it. Okay, moving on to our second and last kind of classical recording of the day, because I kind of mm. chose a, a jazz work yeah. that's based on a classical work for my third um, choice. But let's go for the second one first. This is uh, Paris, 1847, the music of Eugène Jean Yancourt, I guess J is like a Y in French. I can't remember now. Je Eugène Yancourt, I'm going to guess. Yeah. Jean Cour. Yeah, it could be Jean. <laughs> I can't remember now. I'm trying to think of another French word with a J in it. This was uh, this okay. one was was interesting because um, well, I listened to it and then I read the program notes and I got a chuckle because it sort of echoed in a in a much more specific way <laughs> of what yeah. I was kind of thinking. Uh, because it's an unusual recording, yeah. It is. It's all it's all music for bassoon, okay? And the bassoonist in this case is Matthew Lucier, and he is accompanied by Camille Paquette-Roy on the cello, uh, Sylvain Bergeron on guitar, and Valérie Milot on harp. They're all French, I guess. They all have French names anyway. I didn't look mm. them all up. Okay. Jean Cour, I guess. I guess that's going to be it. Janvier, it's going to be Jean Cour, sorry. Yeah, like January is Janvier. So Jean Cour is the composer. 
Um, he um, published a Method Théorique et Pratique pour le Besson in Trois Parties in 1847, which is part of the name of the album. Um, only 10 years after launching into his career, it's uh, 234 pages long. And it perm the work permanently influenced the development of the bassoon and its repertoire. Okay, mm -hmm. this... Um, the book is a gold mine of information on performance practice in mid 19th century France. And of course, what Jean Cour is concerned with is the tonal color of the bassoon and using it, I guess, correctly would be how he would think. And remember, the French are real fanatics when yeah, it comes yeah. to um, uh, the, the, the timbre of the instrument and how it how to shape it so that it's shown off to its best effect. They're exceptionally good at that. I just love yeah. listening to French composers for that reason. I thought, you know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, we were talking about oboe works uh, recently, you know, last week and then uh, mm. in a couple previous episodes. And we thought that, uh, oh, when we had the Vasque's uh, oboe piece too. And then, we, you know, the, yeah. the oboe, when we hear that tone and the way – whether it's because of convention or the way that it's used, we think, you know, pastoral quality. You know, we see meadows and sheep yeah, and right. uh, those kind of things. And it's a double reed instrument, right? Right. Uh, but then the bassoon has the other, another double reed instrument on, you know, the low range, you know, skipping by the English horn mm -hmm. and whatnot. What, what image do we get from the bassoon is often like a, more like, you know, just bassoon to buffoon, it gets that comic relief. <laughs> I, I, I even made that joke in my novel, Extreme Music, yeah. which which you should buy on Amazon, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> you definitely yeah. should read it. Couldn't, um, couldn't, couldn't resist. The buffoon yeah. concerto features yeah. a, it's like a homeless guy it, that's just dragged out onto the stage. No, no, gets, no. The homeless guy is, the, uh, is a different one. This is it like gets the, the comic relief yeah. role in a program music or something. The, yeah. Something comes loping out of the forest. Burr, 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 burr it's the bassoon yeah, yeah. you know uh yeah. and it gets the short I'm, shrift there you know i'm, I'm sorry the, the homeless guy was the the hobo concerto, hobo concerto. <laughs> but uh I, I, i'm the worst anyway go ahead yeah you know so the the image of the bassoon is uh as sort of you know you know comedy relief uh uh, some kind of bumbling line or yeah. uh, something, something mysterious. Uh, but I think that's, you know, that's not fair because, you know, in a, some way the bass clarinet gets that ominous roll, you know, that yeah. it comes in. And then we, as we saw last week, uh, bass clarinet, we, we know because we love bass clarinet, it can be really beautiful. You know, it can hit all of these low tones, but it also has this great lyrical melody quality melodic quality and why not the bassoon too and so after i read the the uh, album notes it put it much more eloquently you know what yeah, i was he, these just, were these were really good album yeah. uh, really informative uh album notes here yeah what i actually think that this the music here it's actually nothing special in terms yeah. of classical it's things pretty. yeah it, but it's pretty yeah. it's on mm -hmm. any other instrument it would just be you know another set of recordings but it does really show the bassoon as you know something you know a legit a legitimate contender to melodic material and uh all of its possibilities and that's good and there's one other thing that i really like about it but i'll save that for the end 
Yeah. Okay. And in fact, it also shows off uh, Matthew Lussier's uh, beautiful oh, yeah. tone on this. Wonderful. He he, he comes across uh, sounding really great. Um, if if only because we don't get to hear the bassoon <laughs> in the <this> solo role <laughs> exactly. for this extended a period. Usually, you know, so that's kind of nice. Mm. Incidentally, I want to mention the bassoon. Of course, is the instrument that starts that plays one of the most famous lines written in the 20th century uh the opening to stravinsky's rite of spring but we're going to hear the jazz rite of spring in the next piece and that's right they replaced the bassoon Uh-oh. with a bass clarinet there which is Ooh. very cool anyway mm. but in, in the original stravinsky work you hear that bassoon that dun, da, da, na, 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 na. that's a bassoon and that's really its best moment really <laughs> it's got a good moment in beethoven's fourth symphony too in the fourth movement but that's a different story all right okay so the uh, the ensemble here has added an extra harmonic instrument to the cello because it's generally duos these they're two like melodic lines but they wanted some harmony to they wanted to fill out the harmony a bit these musicians so um the harp there's a harp outlining harmonies and plays the low bass line in the three popular tunes and then the guitar is adds harmony and rhythmic exuberance to the sonatas mm. now on this album we hear young oh, i keep saying that jean Cour, um wrote three um petite sonate so small sonatas and also three grandes sonates which are a little longer and they have an extra movement uh big sonatas and we hear all three of the petite sonates here and only one of the grand sonates the first one is a petite sonate uh in do majeur which is uh, c major um and this one is the uh, first one of the set um this is charming the first it's a three movement work charming lyrical theme that's basically what we're going to say about all of these works there are they're different beautiful themes but they're all very lyrical and it starts in the low end of the bassoon we get to hear the whole range of the bassoon in these works it's it these are kind of um what's yeah i don't want to say pedantic because it makes it sound boring it's not boring but it's kind of like uh uh pedagogical material yeah yeah pedagogical well, studies yeah, yeah there's studies, studies really, yeah. So, yeah etudes no, but almost it's, yeah. it's good to hear though as the cello chugs along on the second line you can just hear the guitar filling out the harmony and adding slight percussive rhythm on its attack over the wide frequency of the bassoon in this register uh, the movement is classical sounding the bassoon puts one in the mood of the pastoral though not like the oboe does it's an ideal spring movement okay so this is a good uh, movement and really album to hear at this time of year um because only a cello provides the second line, kind of the counterpoint, the music can sound sparse. And the work is ultimately pedagogic, but it's musical as well. And this is a very soothing movement. And the second movement is an adagio, traditionally the slow movement, and it, this is even slower than the already pretty slow first movement. Um, the melody floats in midair like incense as the cello line sweeps up the tonal elements in the lower range. Okay, so I guess the, the it's sweeping up the ashes from the incense, I don't know. <laughs> it's my in my image there. Uh, the guitar is discreet. It's a gorgeous melody. The cello steps out a bit when it goes into its lowest range. Otherwise, it remains contrapuntally song-like under the constantly singing bassoon. This is a very brief movement. Third movement is a rondo, and in fact, all of the uh, third movements in these petite sonates are going to be rondos, um, which means a returning theme. It goes away and comes back and it's it's a way to get your bearings really this is this is how um instrumental composers composing instrumental movements figure out how to keep the audience um 
aware of what was happening. Okay, they were just kind of, this is one of the forms they would use, this repeating theme. Uh, the rondo theme is slightly dancey, as they generally are, and rhythmic. Uh, once we depart from it, we hear more figuration in the bassoon. Um, apparently, uh, Lucier, the bassoonist, uh, studied Jean Cour's method and exemplifies all of the beautiful playing it espouses. Uh, the French and their sense of instrumental character and timbre is pretty amazing. Timbre. Timbre. A lovely work all the way through. Uh, set this one as your alarm to wake up to in the morning, and I guarantee you'll have a really good day. <laughs> it just really puts it's it's it just feels good. It's a really nice work, and it's not challenging to the ear at all. In fact, it's it's rather soothing. All right, fourth movement, Gaetano Donizetti, arranged by Jean Cour. He's these are his arrangements of popular songs. This is a romance from L'Elysée d'Amore. The Elixir of Love by Donizetti. Um, we switch to the harp as the accompaniment here, and it gives a dark, haunted, desolate atmosphere. The bassoon takes the main melody, and the cello provides occasional echoes and answers to the bassoon's lines. Very nice. It's it's a memorable melody anyway, as we know oh, from the opera. Yeah. I wanted to say here for any listeners who follow along uh, on the... Uh, Deezer playlist uh, only on Deezer for some reason as I told you this week uh, they have all the Jean Court uh, pieces here but the three other pieces are missing from the Deezer streaming uh, yeah. and I reported it to them uh, I noticed when I looked on Apple and Spotify it's following the album directly somehow okay. on Deezer they missed the non-Jean Court pieces. So maybe they'll get those if they see my message uh, or not. Yeah. But uh, if you're trying to follow along and wonder what's missing, it's the non-Sonata uh, works are not on the Z Deezer streaming list. So. Yeah, just to make that clearer, the three non-Jean Court composed works are arranged by him for the bassoon. So he wants to set them so the bassoons right. can play right. these fantastic melodies. And they come in between all the sonatas. Um Tracks five to seven, we get uh, the deuxième sonate in fa majeur. That's um, F major. Do, re, mi, fa, right? Yeah, F major. Um, it's the second of the trois petites sonates. And uh, this starts with a moderato. Um, this starts out almost as a vocal statement in the bassoon. It kind of sounds a little operatic and rhetorical, really. Like it's kind of like making a point. Or explaining something. Then it gets cheerful and does some of the charming scalar runs we get from the bassoon. Um, it seems that when you're doing these runs on the bassoon, you have to breathe each note in the scale. Um, you, know, you have because it's uh, you you don't really get like one breath and then like a bunch of keys clacking and you get this legato melody. <laughs> they always seem to have to. Not to ask a bassoonist one day about this. Mm. They always seem to have to blow every note, which sounds really challenging. I'm not sure about that though. Okay, there's also a cello providing the counter melody, accompaniment, and occasional continuations of the line. Listen carefully for the discrete guitar. There's one rather impressive arpeggiated episode by the bassoon in this movement. It's very short. Second movement, adagio. Very little pause between the opening movement and this, and they blend together beautifully. Uh, Jean Cour has a good ear for appealing melodies, even in his pedagogical works. All right, this would have been a good teacher to study with. Um, this uh, movement is very song-like in nature, and the warmth of Lucier's bassoon tone carries the listener along 
with the cello again providing counterpoint and the slightly less discreet guitar this time, a bit of rhythmic impetus and harmony. Uh, this movement is a bit longer and more substantial than the middle movement of the previous sonata. Uh, it's, it's over three minutes long. Um, still kind of short, but not like a minute. Uh, melting tones from the bassoon, really lovely. And the third movement is a rondo. It's like a jig this time. Um, it's in 6-8. Um, the guitar steps out a bit to make sure we're getting the rhythmic accents. And the bassoon remains melodic in the departures, while the cello plays a lot of figuration in arpeggiated chords. I really enjoy the bassoon's melting lines in the second departure from the theme, uh, followed by its figuration. There are a lot of nice ideas in this work, and the entire work moves at a leisurely pace, sets to good mood. Okay, the eighth track is um, another popular tune. This one is Bellini, the, another one of those uh, bel canto um, you know, composers from the early uh, 19th century. Uh, <laughs> so they, they used to call this bel canto, beautiful singing, right, in Italian. But in Broadway, when you can, like, sing really loud so that the people at the back of the theater are um, pinned against the wall from the power of your breathing. They call that the uh, Can Belto school of <laughs> singing, which I think is hilarious. Can belt. It's an old joke, the Can Belto. <laughs> she can <laughs> belt it out. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I still find that funny, like 30 years later. I just think, I don't know. It's so funny, funny. It is funny. Okay, this is the Cavatine from Norma, the opera Norma by Bellini. Um, the harp provides the melodic content, and uh, there's a gorgeous melody that's sung meltingly by the bassoon. There's no cello in this particular arrangement. Okay, tracks 9 to 11, we hear the third of the petite sonates, the petite sonatas. Um, the first movement, Allegro, um, these... Um, these, these are a lot quicker than those uh, slower, moody songs that we've been hearing in between. So it, it, it adds a, it's a, they're a nice contrast to separate all this rather cheerful material. This particular one is a mid-tempo classical theme. It's fairly predictable, but lovely nevertheless. Once the bassoon plays its theme, the cello gets a chance to take the lead, while the bassoon up front plays some descending and then ascending, scalar figuration deep in its range. There is a guitar providing discrete harmonic information. Second movements is my favorite rhythm, a Siciliano. Um, this has a bit of a forlorn quality to it. Siciliano rhythms generally do. Uh, as the bassoon beautifully laments its melody. The cello stays close. The guitar takes on a big rhythmic role here. Lovely winding melody from the bassoon. And the third movement is simply labeled finale. Okay, it's a, it's a burbling and fairly energetic theme. All of the tempos in these works never get anywhere near presto. <laughs> they're, they're always kind of at this... <laughs> I, that might have something to do with the instrument, though, how it's best shown off. Uh, the cello chugs along to assist the guitar with the rhythm while the bassoon plays the appealing melody. Okay, next we get a serenade by Franz Schubert, arranged by Jean Cour from his melodies. Here the harp comes back to play the rocking chords of the accompaniment, and the bassoon stays in its lower, darker range. This is brief and pretty. And then for the send-off, we get the third of the Grand Sonatas. This is the, and this one's a four movement work. And it is bigger, it's longer than the other three. The first movement is starts with an introduction, Larghetto, and then moves to Allegro non troppo. Um, 
Okay, it's uh, got an introduction here, pensive and rhetorical lines from the bassoon. Then the music livens up to resolve the tension and suddenly starts to resolve the tension, okay? The guitar accompanies with a Spanish-sounding arpeggiated chord pattern, and the bassoon's line is broken up during the intro. Then the entire tone gets chipper, and the bassoon's line hops around for the main themes. The bassoon shows a lot more technique in this movement, and I guess the other two pieces of the Grand Sonatas too, which we don't hear, uh, than we heard in the three Petite Sonats. Um, the guitar is far more audible here than it's been at any point on the recording. During some of the more impassioned sections of the score, the guitar strums loudly and accents its notes for rhythmic impetus. Second movement is Andante Cantabile, a very Italian marking, singable. Um, an excellent opening note at the very low end of the bassoon's range, and it sounds with a satisfying, reedy buzz. I love that sound. Then it climbs up into its more lyrical range and plays the gorgeous melody accompanied by an arpeggiated guitar line and a rocking to-and-fro cello line. Third movement is a set of variations, Air Varié, um, intro, intro, Introduction, Thème et Variation, okay, Introduction, Theme, and Variations. The intro is pretty slow and rhetorical and dramatic. The theme is simple and pretty and has a middle eight, which kind of makes for some interesting variations. Um, there are, I heard, how many variations? Three. Okay, it's not that long a movement. The first variation has a lot of figuration from the bassoon. We can hear the guitar plucking his strings and the cello busy with melodic fragments. The third variation is very fast. Uh, this is the second one, I think. Oh, yeah, the third variation is very fast, the fastest we've heard on this record. Uh, very impressive playing from the bassoon, who has to puff away at the instrument to articulate all the quick circular figuration. Um, cello and guitar both are in harmony roles, and this movement, surprisingly, is the shortest at 4 minutes and 30 seconds. Usually variation movements go on forever, but not here. Then we get the final movement, the fourth movement, Moderato. This is kind of a laid-back theme in the bassoon. Uh, the cello and guitar make themselves known in this movement. And it's a rondo. The, the opening theme keeps coming back. Uh, the song-like main theme is heard again and again. The second departure is also song-like in 3-4. So you got this kind of waltzing rhythm. It resolves with some nice octaves from the bassoon. We hear the 3-4 theme, main theme again, and that's it. Uh, I never would have thought an entire album of bassoon-led music could be so appealing. Uh, it says a lot, first of all, for Matthew Lussier's appealing tone and phrasing, and probably a lot for Jean Coeur's method itself. All right, I enjoyed this all the way through without any flagging interest, but I have to say, if you're looking for something intellectual, uh, this is not for you. These are pretty straightforward works, and uh, maybe something good to uh, discover if you're kind of not looking for a challenge, if you're looking for... To unwind, um, it's it's very pretty all the way through, and uh, the music is yeah, it's fairly predictable how it's going to go, but uh, we're listening to this for the timbre, and uh, that is really nice. Yeah, it's usually as we mentioned, used for comic or eerie atmospheric effects in the orchestra, so it's a nice chance to hear the bassoon as the main melodic instrument. Interestingly, here, which was the most appealing thing to me in the setting, is that it's paired with the cello, yeah. know, and both those instruments are in you know the sort of baritone voice range, uh, 
And so the cello yeah, it is kind of odd, isn't it? As a counterpoint, rather than a contrast, you know, you would have like you know flute with cello or or something, or you would think yeah, a violin then, in a bassoon. You'd yeah, have but then that. the uh, the violin, the higher instrument, would be the lead, and he well, didn't want that. You obviously. could think so, yeah, maybe yeah. just because of the range. I mean, you could do it, but I like having both of those. That's my favorite range. You know, which I like the cello of all yeah, string I instruments. Like, I like the and, lower and ranges. So as well. I found sort of a warm atmosphere created by that timbre and and it gets that french you know uh focus on timbre uh but within that warm baritone voice range uh you get to hear the bassoon in the full range of the instrument yeah which really made me you know consider things i don't really think about with the bassoon it has a very kind of melodic uh range wide range that it can you know be the main instrument uh, at ease. However, the few places where the movements do dip into the lower register are really interesting because it can be rather, (laughs) (laughs) you know, alarming sound that wakes you right up uh, when it gets down to the depth. So it does have that character to it as well. I like that sound as well. And so you get all of that uh, contained in these, you know, Melodically, they're they're not surprising works at all, but you listen to them for the timbre and then appreciate uh, the full range and possibilities of the instrument. And uh, the musician here, uh, Lucia, yeah, he's a master of the instrument and uh, he shows uh, varied articulations and a beautiful tone and it make you appreciate an instrument you may have overlooked as, uh, you know, just a strange kind of uh, large tube. <laughs> In the wind section of an orchestra, yeah, uh, right. Yeah, nice feature. Yeah. So anyway, I had um, two uh, pretty albums, and now we're going to go for the uh, the rough and ready here, um, a, mm. a, a spring themed work, but not the kind of spring you uh, expect. Um, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring is a was a ballet. It, was, it premiered in nineteen thirteen about a human sacrifice. <laughs> that that was supposed to make the plants grow in primitive times. Um, <laughs> it's it's not, usually not the way we like to think of spring. But I didn't go for a classical recording of this. Recently, um, uh, the pianist and uh, band leader uh, Jim McNeely, uh, big band jazz big band leader uh, Jim McNeely, um, he arranged. He did a jazz arrangement of the entire. Well, the entire. I want to say the entire ballet, but all let's say all the themes in the ballet, mm. because he really doesn't arrange the ballet. It's it's not it follows it's a the new same work. order. It's a new work, yeah. Yeah, I have. Uh, I, I want to I want to say something about <laughs> okay. that because I read that in the in the notes, and I don't really I'm not completely on board with the fact that it's a new work. Um, but um, he's conducting the Frankfurt Radio Big Band here, and um, Chris Potter is um, on featured on tenor saxophone, and boy, does this guy. Yeah. Put through his pay. He's some kind of player. Mm, <laughs> this is really sure. a fantastic performance by him. And it's the album is called Rituals. And um, basically what the ritual is, the, the piece is called Rituals, but it's really the themes from the Rite of Spring set mm-hmm. to jazz. And he's actually changed a lot of stuff too. Um and it says here that the um, I don't I actually ordered a C of this a CD of this like about a month ago and it hasn't shown up yet. I get so, it for uh, summer. <laughs> yeah, I'm, the, I'm gonna I'll get it. Yeah, the the, the right of summer. <laughs> um, the idea was to commission uh, Jim McNeely to compose this work for Chris Potter. Um, it says it's not a jazz version of the Rite of Spring, which is true, 
but instead a new composition, uh, which I'm not... It uses, like, a lot of the themes from A Rite of Spring, so I don't think you can call it a new composition, in my opinion, anyway. It was inspired by the sound language of the Rite of Spring, which is uh, listed as uh, Le Sacre du Printemps here, which is the French title, uh, the, which it premiered under. Uh, the performance was a huge success of this jazz work, which is why Potter and the uh, HR, the, the big band, uh, the Frankfurt Radio Big Band uh, decided to record the whole thing again in a studio. Now, that premiere happened in 2013, and I've only just gotten around to Ooh. recording it recently. Mm. Okay, with pl- Well, they, I think they just performed it, and they were just going to let it go, yeah. and then they decided we should really record this. And I'm glad they did, because I liked it a lot. I thought it was a really nice take on this work. With plenty of verve and aplomb... The, the, the H, it says the HR Big Band, this is the Frankfurt Radio Big Band, glides through the complex rhythmic and harmonious score that Manili composed in the spirit of Stravinsky. Again, I he composed a lot of stuff here. He changed a lot of the lines. But I feel like the harmonies and the gestures are all Stravinsky's. He, I mean, it's all identifiable as the Rite of Spring, hmm. you know, except that he's changing a lot of things. So I think it's a little too much to say it's a new composition. I think it's... Yeah, you know what I kind of thought of when I was listening to it. You know how they'll like release like, say the uh, the alternate take of uh, you know Hey Jude or something like that by the Beatles. You know, <laughs> and it just sounds totally different than than, than the one you know. I, I kind of thought that was kind of like that. Oh, they just unearthed this jazz version of the Rite of Spring, and <laughs> you know the themes are a little different, stuff like that. You know. He had, I don't know. He hadn't, hadn't arrived at his final version yet. But my take is that it it was sufficiently different, but uh, it it I, it evokes a lot of the the same uh, kind yeah. of responses because it it goes through the same sort of transformations and uh, aims at the same kind of thematic material, although it uses different devices and instruments to get there. Um, yeah, it. But the whole the the entire work. Um, it, you know the the structure of the work is the exact same as the Rite of Spring, yeah, except for the yeah. final movement. It follows the ballet's order mm. um, in in its themes, like you know, completely. Anyway, let's talk about this. Um, the first track is called "Rituals Adoration One." Now, in the original Stravinsky ballet, the first uh, tableau, which is it's separated into two parts, and the first one is called "The Adoration of the Earth." Um, and uh, it, it sort of shows the dancers kind of doing these sort of like ceremonies about, you know, these sort of, um, you know, to welcome mm. spring. Okay, so this um, starts with that famous uh, bassoon line, but it doesn't uh, end the same way. Uh, it kind of goes off in a different direction. We hear the dun, da, 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 and then it kind of goes off. It keeps mm. descending. It's a little different. So recompose, I guess, but there's a strong reference to the Stravinsky there. And, um, it's famous for being a bassoon line, but here it's played by a bass clarinet, which was kind of intriguing, I thought. Hmm. Um, it solos a bit over wandering notes, which is possibly a piano. I couldn't really tell. We get a lot of the familiar woodwind harmony, um, which is really fantastic in the uh, in this and in the original work. Hmm. Uh, but the melodic lines are slightly changed and greatly expanded. Um, so, so far, this doesn't sound like jazz at all, but an alternate run of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. Like, you know, <laughs> I, I do love the uh, breathy separated woodwind section with the repeated bass note. I'm trying to remember what that was now. I should have listed, gone to the the ballet's um, 
because each scene has a name and I should have just gone by that classical listeners will probably be would be able to follow that but i didn't uh do that <laughs> i'm afraid okay we hear the harsh loud there's a harsh loud chord and the saxophone which we don't hear at all in the original right um <laughs> this is chris potter and he plays something soulful and we're out of stravinsky's territory at this point though we're still hinting at it hmm. um the brass section plays some jazzy chord punctuation like the you know when you hear like in a big band bat 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 that kind of thing really great as the sax solos and then we get the the very famous rhythmically syncopated section of the original score like dun 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 that one mm-hmm. with an official with its offbeat accents but here accompanied by drums and rather swung it's got a bit of a swing to it it doesn't come across as savage like it does in the original work mm. i should say i shouldn't maybe i shouldn't call it the original work but the work that it's arranged after or that's you know playing off of um he's going for something more comfortable here that's mm. not a criticism that's just his uh what he wants uh it's enjoyable actually because it's usually pretty uh intimidating in the original score <laughs> uh, a lot of the right score right of spring score elements are used as signposts for what's going to be mm. impro- improvised on so you'll recognize your partner's score, and then there'll be this improvisation on that. Uh, there's an intriguing sax solo over the next section after the dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, okay. As the rhythmic patterns detach and get more out of control, uh, we reach a point of chaos, which is not in the original score. Uh, there's a transition to a... See, I couldn't really tell because I didn't have the information in front of me. This is a tenor sax. I think it's probably still Chris Potter, but I'm not sure. Mm. Uh, um, is he switching instruments here? Or? No, I don't think I don't, so. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, the sax player, which I'm guessing is Chris Potter again, plays a virtuosic uh, bop-type solo with lots of loops in the figuration. Uh, next comes the slow, lurching section of the score. Dun, 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 dun. That one, fairly faithful to the original. Uh, the music remains much as it was in the original score with some touch-ups to brighten the brass. And with some wailing solos by Potter, he really is the star, man. He's he gets a fantastic sound, and he's um, right up front. This must have been a thrill for him to play. All right, we get to the next track, Rituals Adoration Two, which continues, you know, with the material um, that Stravinsky's writing. This section begins with the bassoon and flute playing um, what I believe was the Sage's entrance music. It's a flute and bassoon. Uh, I can't really imitate it with my voice because I don't really remember the melody, but it's a total texture change. Um, There's some kind of light marimba tapping out a rhythmic figure beneath it. I couldn't really tell what that was, Um, but it's kind of, it's got that kind of bell-like, you know, hammer on key Mm. kind of sound. Uh, The next wild section is fairly measured here, not as wild as it is in the Rite of Spring Ballet. And the ensemble gets some time to show its timbral tone off here. Uh, everything gets wild again, and this track ends um, with a change well, to the next track, which is called Rituals Adoration 3. This begins with Potter playing a wailing solo alone. This is a big wow for me. I was like, I thought this was a pretty thrilling... Uh, it had fantastic energy to it. Mm. It just really struck me. Um, this peters out, and we get a the chord played when the sage blesses the earth um, and then this kind of wild dance starts uh, I called it a wild ritual section 
should have looked up the name. To tell the truth, Stravinsky's music in this guise makes me think we're at a big Las Vegas show rather than an ancient <laughs> ritual. You know, it sounds you know, it sounds like you're in a room and the carpets are plush and all these you know half naked women with these gigantic headgear on or something. I don't know. <laughs> I kind of got that impression. That's again, that's not an insult, but it's just the image that came to me. It just kind of made me smile. It's great, but it just comes across that way with all the brassy glow. Okay. All right, we move on to the uh, second part of the uh, ballet, which is simply called The Sacrifice, and that's what it's called here. Um, so Rituals is the name of the piece, and this is Sacrifice 1, track 4. Um, this starts with the same rhythmic pattern as the, the, the Stravinsky score, but the melodic material winds downward instead of rocking back and forth as it does in Stravinsky's score. I enjoyed a lot of the bending of the woodwind chords here, the little ear candy. Uh, lots of good low reads, too, in this section. Uh, this sticks fairly close to the score's structural and melodic profile, but it's touched up. The pencil line melodies that follow... When I, when I say pencil line melodies, I mean they're very sparsely harmonized. You're, you're just hearing like a melody um, with played in an octave with a lower instrument. Um, they're harmonically touched up a little bit, and the wild dance with brass bursts that follow is given a swing rhythm, and Potter solos over walking bass and swinging drums after that. <laughs> you just call this the right of swing. He should have called it that. Woo. And you have a right to swing. Yeah, I think that's you? a Phil Woods album, actually. But uh, Is it really? I think so. The right to oh, swing. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's, well, I think it's a pretty obvious title, though. Okay, some dissonant right chords are heard. Right, meaning right of spring chords, are heard. Then we get the brass playing over driving quasi-rock rhythm. Uh, very cool soloing here, and there's a loungy mm. sax line that ends the movement. All right, Rituals, Sacrifice 2. Now, this go takes us to the end of the the, the uh, themes from the ballet proper. Um, this is where the sacrifice begins in the ballet with the mysterious ticking rhythm and the curling upward bassoon riff dun 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 ba -na -na -na. that that part mm. people who are familiar with the Rite of Spring score will know exactly what I'm talking about because this stuff really sticks out even though it's really dissonant okay then there's a da na 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 da da na 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 that kind of reminds me of the music in uh the original King Kong when the uh the natives are doing the dance. <laughs> I, I swear they, they must have because I was nineteen thirty three, they must have lifted it from this score. It's possible, yeah. Yeah. Uh that sounds like it's taken by a marimba, but I don't know that it's a marimba, but it's kinda like this again, hammered bell like instrument. I thought it was um, vibes, uh, but could be. Yeah. Yeah. A marimba might be a little, might not have the sustain. Okay, yeah. so maybe the vibes. Okay, yeah. Um, that would be a more jazz-oriented instrument anyway. Um, I still have this, like, classical ear, so I just, I default <laughs> to classical instruments. <laughs> I don't know what that is. It's a classical instrument. Okay. Some arpeggiated woodwind patterns transition to a rather light, unaggressive version of the second syncopated part of the dance. Um, yeah, he takes a lot of the aggression away, which is intentional here mm. and it makes the work uh really appealing i have to say although you know when i was younger and i first heard the right of spring i thought all the dissonance and the rhythm was and the loudness of it was really exciting it was like a rock you know <laughs> song you know the the sax gets a solo under a repeated note syncopated figure in the harmony 
There's a piano in there and some other instruments. I like that. Some other instruments. <laughs> yeah, they played <laughs> instruments. I don't know. I didn't know what they were. That's why I wrote that. It changes to brass with drums midway through and gets louder as in the sax as the sax starts wailing again. Uh, Chris Potter again, really impressive. There's a combination of the score and a jazzy feel in this part. They're kind of both going on at the same time, with the drums providing the jazz and the the rest of the ensemble is providing the uh, the uh, Stravinsky esque score. The sax solo ends and the next section starts. The sax this time takes a lighter but still virtuosic solo. This builds to the big wailing climax accompanied only by drums for a while. And the brass come in. The actual moment of sacrifice is heard in the sax at the very end. And the piece with a thud ends. But that's not the end of this particular piece. The sixth track is called Rituals Rebirth. Okay, and none of this is Stravinsky. This is all uh, Jim McNeely now. This starts with a pulsing bass. Uh, it sounds like a piano string being struck or plucked, actually. Um, like, really load in the piano. I'm not really sure about that, though. It's probably a bass, though. This section is completely new, and you can hear a harp playing a circling arpeggio as the brass play the ominous material. There's also a distorted electric guitar in here, a little surprise, and a little ear candy, too, which plays a few notes and goes on into a timekeeping pattern. Uh, solos from soprano saxophone. Um, is this Chris Potter still? Does he play all these instruments? I don't know. I think of him as a tenor saxophone. Uh, then we hear the tenor saxophone. So I, I'm guessing this is soprano saxophone, and then Potter plays the tenor. Uh, the, uh, I wish I had the CD. I'd know. <laughs> the ending echoes the right with its harsh chords. Um, I thought this this must be fun if difficult to play this work because you get to mm. wail like throughout. Uh, the ostinato bass continues throughout the track. The sax winds down and peters out, and so does the orchestral material. We hear an echo of the opening theme, Stravinsky's famous opening bassoon theme, uh, on uh, minus its final note, in the sax this time, as the piece ends. And that's the end of the piece, Rituals, which I thought was really thrilling. And I think you'll especially like it if you like Stravinsky's original score, and if you're not a purist, if you are, you want to stay <laughs> away. I like things like this, though. It's cool. Yeah, I would definitely say at least become f familiar with, you know, the Rite of Spring. Listen to it once. Otherwise, you it'll won't be really... It'll be more fun. Yeah. yeah, it'll be a lot more fun. Uh, and I didn't listen to it immediately before this, but just on, you know, I have a, a really nice recording of uh, Yeah, by this Rite point, I've spring. heard it so many times, though. Yeah, <laughs> that um, the basic, you know, progression and uh, key figures are still in my memory, so I could appreciate... Right. Sort of where this was, you know, building on and then, you know, the pivot points and where it was going. And yeah, really interesting orchestrations, uh, arrangements of all the, the big band uh, to get big effects and uh, yeah. with Potter's amazing solos. Yeah, really and, and also cool. a, fa a fantastic recording as well. I mean, yeah, it really, yeah, very it really uh, impacts, you know, it's yeah. really clean. Dynamic. Yeah. Dynamic, really great. Okay, mm. so a fantastic recording. By the way, anyone who wants to, uh, if you're not so familiar with the Stravinsky score and you're not going to listen to a 30-minute ballet, it is easier to absorb a ballet if you can actually see it performed because then you kind of understand the movements, what the movement yeah, is exactly. pointing to, you know? Um, there's a fantastic movie by uh, Wim Wenders called um, Pina, which is about the uh, 
deceased um, choreographer, Pina Bausch, the German choreographer. And uh, the beginning is her um, choreography of a section of the Rite of Spring. It's not the entire ballet. Well, mm. it might be. I haven't seen it in a while. But it's not – it's very different than the original. It's her more modern take mm. on it. But it's a good way to get to know the music. You might want to watch that. Uh, it's really powerful. I liked her um, mm. her uh, choreography a lot, actually. Um. Let's see. Okay, so the next there are four more tracks on this album, and they're all Chris Potter compositions, and they appear on his earlier albums. On this album, we're hearing Jim McNeely's arrangements of these four works, right. and Potter's playing them. Okay, the first track is called Dawn, and this is from his album The Sirens, and uh, the tracks on this album kind of you know play off of uh, Greek myths, so the sirens would be the... Uh, Sirens from the Greek myth and Dawn with her rosy fingers. This is a line that um, comes up in Homer's Odyssey a lot. Okay, this um, piece starts with a really classical type sunrise figure by the winds. You hear these like chords and they're, they're kind of light. And you get a sense of the haze of the morning from them. It's something classical composers would do. This act plays a sultry melody and perhaps awakening from an exhausting night of either... Love making or drunkenness, <laughs> or both. <laughs> or an all night debauch, or both, <laughs> or both. Right, give me, yeah, it did give me that kind of um, mm. feeling, an exhaustion. You don't really want to be getting up at this point. Uh, this eventually morphs into a piano-accompanied solo with subtle drums and bass. Um, Potter is a virtuosic soloist, and he's inventive in his solo here, as he is really throughout the rituals piece. And you Another get a lot sax- of uh, nice interplay with the other saxes. Uh, yeah, on on his original tracks here, especially this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another sax takes over at one point too. The, the other, yeah, other saxes, as you said. Uh, the figures are a bit, yeah, okay. They're different than Potter's. He kind of contrasts a bit. Mm. Eventually, all of the brass combine into a controlled cacophony of solo lines. I love when that happens. Really, <laughs> I'm guessing that Potter's again. It's Potter again after this section dissipates. He shows his chops. We get a descending wind chord figure toward the end as the various saxes re-enter their controlled cacophony. Waves of wind and brass arpeggios bring us to the end where we're left with a set of gorgeous resolving chords. Nice piece. Yeah. Next was a piece called The Wheel from uh, Chris Potter. Well, the piece originally appeared on Chris Potter's album Underground. And this is a really funky uh, mm. piece of writing here. This starts with a trash-talking, looping sax. It's really kind of <laughs> sassy-sounding, uh, which I really enjoyed. Um, that the muted trumpets in the band take over as the sax frees itself and starts a confident solo. And a really sassy one, too. kind of really does sound kind of like something nasty is being said here. Uh, it's got a very cool rhythm and theme. Um, there's a brief calm interlude and then the funky rhythm starts up and a muted brass instrument I'm guessing a trumpet but it's hard to tell from the attack on this uh, solos in syncopated fashion it could have been a wind instrument too I wasn't really sure uh, this is this piece is high energy throughout um, a sax solo follows probably Potter again uh, there's an electric guitar with a wah pedal as part of the accompaniment giving some squishy textures to the overall vibe uh, high energy screaming solo. I thought this was a thrilling work, if a bit repetitive, but uh, Potter makes the most of it. He's got a lot of ideas as well as a lot of chops. This sounds like a fun theme to solo over, and the Frankfurt Radio Big Band in McNeely's arrangement, Bring the Electricity. 
All right. Next, another um, track that originally appeared on Chris Potter's album, The Sirens, called Wine Dark Sea. Again, this is a Homer reference from the Iliad and the Odyssey. This is Chilled Out again. This must have been a pretty chilled out album. I haven't heard it, though. Another fairly chilled out wind and brass opening, as we heard in Dawn. Uh, the mood is established, and the sax comes in as solos with a rather romantic feel in long, warm tones. The energy picks up a bit as a piano plays chords, and the drums establish a solid rhythm, because it was kind of rhythmless at the beginning, or, you know, hard to kind of, you know, pull out. The sax solos more energetically over this, and he gets up into his high range, and the playing is always melodic. This, you know, throughout. A trumpet takes over and solos in a mellow, you know, evening sort of way. Mm. And uh, as he picks up energy, the band accompanies with crescendoing swells and the brass and wind. This ends on a low, emphatic chord with the sax winding down. The last track is called Okinawa. And this is from uh, an album called This Will Be with Casper uh, Tranberg and, uh, and Chris Potter. A, uh, there's a nice opening to this, this piece. I, I like this piece a lot too. Yeah, um, it's interesting. Yeah, an Okinawan sounding modal circling harmony in a soprano sax opens this piece. It, I, uh, you know, again, I think that's a soprano sax. It eventually mm-hmm. settles on a repeating circling figure with groups of notes in threes. So there's kind of like a dun dun dun, dun kind of. You know, feeling, but then they're not triplets, though. Mm. Um, they're kind of, kind of straight. The soprano sax solo that follows is lovely and touching. And about two and a half minutes in, the drums start a, a quasi solo. They get like sort of exposed, but he's, the drummer really throughout quietly taps on the snare, and there's like a subtle quiet rhythm to this work. The accompaniment is mysterious with floating brass and wind chords and a harp glinting in the texture. This chord figure keeps repeating between drum solos. I put that in quotation marks. And the chord figure's reverse direction as an ostinato bass starts up and creates a clearly defined rhythm, which the soprano sax solos over. Uh, He gets a bit of a swing in there and plays a lot of winding snake charmer patterns, which a lot of soprano sax players do. They like that... (laughs) They like that snake charmer sound, you know? Yep. I think the tone invites it, you know? Yeah, maybe. uh, Yeah. Yeah, uh, (laughs) But the thing is, if you're a guy like Kenny G, that's your whole career. You know, you're just making that one sound. Why doesn't he ever get bitten by it? (laughs) (laughs) He can put us out of our misery if he can just get bitten by the snake. All right. The solo gets pretty wild as it goes on, and the opening circling figure is reestablished by the whole band. The piece ends with a cadence and a winding figure on soprano sax. So I'm guessing that's Potter on the soprano sax. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it would have yeah. to be. Yeah. All right. I thoroughly enjoyed this album. It's good spring fare and good fare for the entire year, really. It's a great punchy recording, very clear. It really impacts through your speakers to give you that good chest cavity feel if you got the, the equipment for it. And I really enjoyed the arrangements. And I generally like McNeely's arrangements. I've heard a few of them hmm. on other albums. So, yeah, this is a this is a, a jazz record for uh, classical fans to listen to. If you like the Rite of Spring, you, I feel like you almost have to hear this. But if you're a purist, yeah, there's no hope for you. <laughs> no, I think this is, uh, the arrangements are good. Uh, very interesting use. And uh, if you've got a musician of 
potter's caliber, it's nice to see them put, you know, in some other kind of environment uh, or setting rather, where uh, there's a different theme and something constructed around what they're going to do. And I think that gives them a different type of inspiration rather than just say, you know, playing an album of standards or uh, other jazz compositions, including their own, where they're kind of, you know, limited to trading off solos. Uh, here, their solo becomes sort of the centerpiece of something a lot bigger. And I think that brings out some expectation and uh, hmm. hopefully, you know, something bigger, uh, part of a larger uh, arc of uh, a work like it does here. Uh, so that's really cool uh, here. And I think these kind of things, like you say, for a, class, a classical listener, these can be uh, something of a bridge. I, I remember... You know, many Into jazz, years, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, many years ago I had... I was... Uh, in a work environment with someone and we got on the topic of music and uh, we're often tread lightly uh, trying to feel out a person. But this person was uh, a real uh, classical listener and I mentioned that I, you know, listened to a lot of jazz and he said, well, isn't uh, jazz uh, sloppy? And I thought, <laughs> <laughs> when I heard that word... <laughs> I just I, uh, I know just the kind of uptight person this is. Yeah. I've met many of them. <laughs> and uh I I had a recording that had come out around that time. But it was, it was the man the Manhattan Jazz uh, Quintet and they had done a jazz recording of mainly classical pieces. Oh, Bach and other things uh just arranged in a jazz thing. And I said, "Well, here I get, I brought it in the next time I saw him and I said, "Listen to this." And uh he was really impressed. You know, he had never Good. heard or had never approached jazz uh, in the same way and came away with a different impression. Just because I think, uh, you know, jazz starts from different a different starting point a lot of times with, um, you know, the jazz repertoire of, repertoire of standard songs or other, you know, familiar things to the jazz world. And if you don't know those tunes or where it's coming from, you're not going to understand where the improvisations are going to. But for a classical listener, to start with something that might be a bit familiar as a springboard, it gives them a little bit, you know, more of a something to uh, hold on to and uh, yeah. see the points from. Anyway, it could be a good bridge. And, and regardless, even if you just come to it on its own, it certainly stands on, it is on its own as a impressive work. Uh, yeah, but you'd have to be like a real fan of classical music to use this as a bridge because the Rite of Spring really isn't something that everybody enjoys, you know? Not everyone, Especially yeah. if they, uh, you know, if they're new to the music, it'll just sound really harsh to them. Although if you like rock music, Stravinsky is a good yeah. bridge into classical music because sure. it's just this Bombastic hard, loud, cool. rocking yeah. piece, you know, it's really great. Mm. And Stravinsky yeah. was a jazz fan of, of on his own, actually. There's yeah. that great story of where he went to see Charlie Parker uh, right. in New York. And Charlie Parker, who was a big fan of Stravinsky, saw him yeah. in uh, the audience. And somehow, after that, in his next solo, Charlie Parker right. yeah, worked in a quote from the Rite of Spring uh, into <laughs> his uh, chord. Because, of course, uh, Stravinsky recognized it and got so excited he stood up and knocked over the table and the whiskey and everything. So, you know, there are, there are bridges between those things. Yeah, it's a great story. If it's true, I don't know, but I've read it I in a few places. I don't know, there's, places, a, there's yeah. kind of a more sinister moment where uh, 
Charlie Parker, like in uh, Clint Eastwood's movie about Charlie Parker, I can't remember what the name of it was. Bird. Um, Bur- yeah, it was Bird, yeah, right? Bird. And uh, he shows up at uh, Stravinsky's house drunk, and he rings the bell, and Stravinsky opens the door and doesn't recognize him or anything. And, uh, uh, okay. He kind of, Charlie Parker disappointing, disappointedly walks away. Uh, who knows what's I, true. I guess Stravinsky uh, in the scene thought he was just some vagabond. Uh, and, you know. Yeah, who but, knows? Um, yeah, but anyway, he, he put that in. Anyway, yeah. I do like your story better, though. I hope oh, that yeah. happens. It's kind of inspiring, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Is it jazz time? Well, I guess I think we had to get already. It has been for some time, but anyway. <laughs> kind of, yeah. yeah. We've got a nice uh, we got a big jazz segue this, this time. Week. Anyway, for the remainder of the jazz segment, we're going to go Latin this week yeah. because uh, my Latin list was just growing uh, with a bunch of... Uh, New things and, added to it, and I said, "Let's get some of these out there." And I think you could never hear too much Latin jazz. No, no, we we both like Latin jazz a lot. So yeah, I thought, well, let's get some of these out. And I just picked. Well, these are three very recent uh, releases, and, and they're all very different as well. Yeah, they're all very different. <laughs> but unfortunately, uh, a couple of them are challenges to actually get <laughs> information, like who's playing what. <laughs> to uh, that, yeah. so. Um, now people could, just put their music up. I, can I just make an appeal to uh, musicians out there who are putting your music up online, maybe like selling it through Bandcamp or something like that? Well, Bandcamp tends to list all the, the musicians on the album and give a mm. brief. You, you need to let us know who's in your band. Okay? <laughs> Please. We, they, yeah. Those guys need, they they need, you know, they're musicians too. They need the, the recognition as well. And we yeah. want to, you know, put them across. So please make sure we get all that information if you're putting your music online. Yeah, do that. Uh, mm. So we know who's playing what, and even more. The more information, the better. Uh, mm. So we know what we're listening to. Anyway, yeah. we're gonna. Uh, oh, who we're listening to too? Yeah, who too? Yeah. Who and what? If we hear something great, we want to know who it is. We're gonna keep that person's name in yeah. mind, and if they put out a solo album five years from now, yeah. we'll remember. Anyway, I've been on a kind of a trombone binge recently if you listen right. to last week's episode with matt hall and we're going to continue that yeah there's, uh, a, lot of there's a lot of here. trombone uh in all of this uh tonight too uh the first one focuses on trombone and we're going to go to brazil uh but the uh, main star here is uh, american trombonist ryan keberl and hmm. we've got his uh, new recording uh, actually, this is an older recording, too, that was recorded in 2018, but just released on March 18th. It's uh, Sonos da Esquina, Esquina, mm. uh, Ryan Kibro's Collective do Brasil, uh, mm. alternate side records. And so Kibro is... Uh, Oh, St- oh, did I yeah, mention that Rituals is on the uh, Full Moon Records label? Oh, Full Moon, that's <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. sorry, Double Moon. Double, Double Moon Records. Double Moon, yeah. Double Moon Records. I should have mentioned that, sorry. Okay, Double Moon Records. Uh, here we are on alternate side records. Uh, Keeper is an established trombonist. You may have heard of him if you're a jazz listener. Originally from uh, Washington State, uh, he was around music from an early age, first studying classical violin and piano uh, before he moved to trombone as his main instrument. He came uh, to the East Coast in 1999 to study at the Manhattan School of Music, uh, where he came under the study of Steve Torre, hmm. one of the most awesome trombonists uh, ever. 
I'm waiting for him to make a new uh, recording. Uh, uh, also, uh, some other composers he studied with there. Uh, and then, let's see, he moved on to Juilliard and was a member of uh, Juilliard's first jazz studies graduating class in uh, 2003. Uh, and he studied under trombonist Wycliffe Gordon uh, and uh, also a big band leader and arranger David Berger. Uh, and so then he became active on the New York scene. In He also got into uh, academics, uh, teaching at uh, Hunter College uh, program. But he took time off in 2017 to go to Brazil. And while there, uh, he engaged with uh, three of the main uh, jazz scene musicians there that are heard on this recording. Uh, and uh, started to get some ideas uh, for developing some new material based around Brazilian music. And uh, so here we're going to get uh, some kind of uh, mixture of uh, American jazz influence and also uh, works of uh, Brazilian greats uh, Milton Nascimento and uh, Tonino Horta. Uh, mixed with some jazz tradition. And uh, a lot of this Brazilian music, uh, it kind of focuses on vo voice, vocals as the main instrument. And here the trombone takes over that role. I think that's sort of the key kind of uh, idea of these uh, recordings. So we've got uh, Ryan Keeberl on uh, trombone, who's done most of the arrangements here. Uh, and the rounding out with the Brazilian musicians he's uh, teamed up uh, Felipe Silveira piano who's also got an arrangement on here that we'll point out uh, Tiago Alves on bass and uh, Paulino Vicente on drums and uh, so we get uh, an album that's got an overall really uh, relaxing ambiance to it uh, it uh, sort of incorporates the real vibe and mood of Brazilian music, uh, especially the Nascimento. If you like Milton Nascimento's music and the kind of mood that he evokes, I think uh, Kibros captures a lot of that uh, and makes the trombone really become the voice uh, in these arrangements. So uh, we start out with a Nascimento original. I don't know. My Portuguese pronunciation is not uh, really good here. I don't know. Uh, Chioda Terra, and uh, this one, a famous Nascimento piece arranged by uh, Silveira, the pianist. Uh, it comes in with a light piano intro with nice, delicate bass playing. And Kibero introduces the melody on trombone, bringing it into the upper register. And here you'll see he's able to get this very vocal quality with the trombone uh, on the melody lines. Severa adds some nice piano lines uh, along with uh, Kibro's improvisations and uh, nice subtle bass and drum work from Alves and Vicente. They give the beat a kind of slow heart-like heartbeat pulse uh, to the music uh, that just pushes it on. And I thought this piece is a nice opening when it captures the Nascimento dreamy quality that a lot of his songs have 
just makes this uh, very Brazilian mood. Uh, after the solos, they return to a softer restatement of the melody, and Kibro brings that melody down low uh, for a nice opening. Uh, track two, uh, this is a Kibro's uh, originals, uh, three of them lined up, starting with this one, uh, Campinas. Uh, it starts with some hypnotic alternating piano chords. Uh, when Gabriel comes in, he creates that lonesome feeling uh, that only trombone can uh, create uh, with its unique timbre. Um, he does it with long notes, little bends of pitch on phrases that uh, just bring out a little uh, kinds of unique feelings there. Uh, Vincente is a very uh, sensitive drummer. He only adds light textures on cymbals where they're called for. Um, the others drop out for a piano section of kind of hesitant figures before a new light groove gets established with bass and drums. And then uh, Kibiro comes back in with some solo lines that float and soar above the music below it. Uh, the groove dissipates again before it forms into a new slow beat, focusing around some gentle playing from Silveira. And there's a nice taut bass line from Alves that uh, Kibral joins in for from some backing notes uh, behind Silvera's playing before adding kind of nice lifting interval little line to the end. Uh, so a nice original capturing a Brazilian spirit, I thought, here. Uh, track three, another Kibral's original, Carbon Neutral. Environmental statement, I guess. Uh, <laughs> it's a soft and pretty original melody that Kibero plays with uh, Silveira, adding a kind of steady quarter note pulse on the piano. Uh, just this even kind of feeling that keeps it going. The bass is sparse, the light cymbal and tom fills. Silveira is a pretty interlude of closely harmonized chords uh, using a sustained pedal to get a little uh, more character to it. Kibro returns with a gently rhythmic melody. Uh, then Vincente kicks up uh, the drum fills for some more energy, and Silvera gets a rhythmic solo over the new driving beat. Uh, Kibro's solo is also locked into the groove uh, with more rhythmic slide figures, and he wraps it up softly with a rather unexpected interval before they return to the original pulsing melody. One thing, yeah, in fact, the, the return to the original pulsing melody, um, I'm noticing that these pieces have a ternary form to them, sort of like in, in classical music where you'll have like um, one theme and then there'll be like a middle section and then you'll return to the opening theme. Yeah. He seems to be uh, composing to that uh, to that structure, which is kind yeah. of interesting for it, me. I noticed that too. Uh, yeah. It features in the compositions, yeah. Uh, the next one, let's see... Uh, Track four, Sonos da Esquina. Sonos da Esquina. Esquina, yeah. <laughs> nice this is name. very short, this one. Yeah, it's a short one. A pulsing bass intro that continues through the tune. Here, Kibril interjects alternating. I, these must be overdubbed lines because, you know, he's the only one trombonist here. Uh, but they're layers of trombone that are kind of syncopated figures that create the harmony uh, here because the piano is almost unnoticeable other yeah. than on the last chord. You can kind of pick out that it's sustaining, but the harmonic stacking is all created through the trombones that come above. And there's just really light cymbal splashes uh, that punctuate that. So 
uh, it's really a trombone harm, harmony, short little piece, uh, completely mm. uh, composed. There's not no improvising going on here, but it's kind of interesting and unique uh, as yeah. a feature in the middle of it. Uh, then we get uh, track five. Uh, I guess this is kind of an ode to uh, Nascimento, because five is Clube de Esquina, uh, the Nascimento tune. Uh, it's light piano chords and solo bass melody intro that uh, Kibril joins uh, the bass in a unison melody. That's a nice effect. So you've got the trombone and bass working uh, the same line. Uh, and especially the... Uh, alternating notes on the phrase ends do 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 kind of thing uh really you know you don't often hear trombone and bass doubling each other so that's nice uh vincente comes in delicately behind a gentle solo from silviera allowing lots of space to float for the first part of the tune uh he's a very sensitive drummer i like that he doesn't play when he doesn't need to and then he'll just come in and you realize oh there's drums on this song well he hasn't played yet because there's enough music there. Uh, Kibril comes back with the melody on his own and the bass driving the rhythm to the final ending uh, with some nice piano fills as well. Track six, we're going to switch to a different composer, another famous uh, Brazilian composer and, and musician, Tonino Horta, uh, with the tune Aqui O! Exclamation point. Um, piano intro, rolling chords and cascading upward runs. Kibo brings in a rubato melody on top. Silviera starts a new even rhythmic pattern. It's joined by bass and light cymbals that uh, Kibo floats a new melody over. Vincente kicks up the beat a bit and gets it kind of swinging. The groove ebbs and flows between the infused kind of samba feel and then the relaxed feel that picks up intensity at the peak of Kibril's solo and also in Silviero's funky solo with heavier chords. And Kibril comes back for the melody to the end. Uh, track seven, uh, one of uh, Nascimento's famous tunes, Tarde. Uh, very slow and pretty piano intro before Kibril takes the melody. He really brings out the longing and mournful quality with his trombone tone, vibrato, and perfectly placed little bends of pitch. It's spacious and free-flowing. Vincente adds light drumming that kind of evaporates in spots. As I said, he's very sensitive and mm -hmm. uh, never overplays. Silviera takes a piano interlude, and then Kibro comes back with some more intense and soaring long melodic phrases to the end, and Silviera adding tasty lines underneath. And we get to the final track, another Horta tune, uh, Francisca. Uh, Rubato Piano uh, intro from Silviera gets some rhythm going, and that's joined by Alves on bass. Uh, Kibrot brings in the melody phrases that have a kind of swinging quality to them in their rhythm. Uh, Vincente keeps it light with little touches and clicks, and Alves gets a bass solo here, uh, focusing on very tight upper register tones. And Silviera gets a solo too, with appearing, appealing motion, rolling phrases, and some speedy runs. Uh, nice piano work. Then Kibo returns for an intense solo, where uh, underneath Vincente kicks up the rhythm to match it. And they take the melody for a final ride to a lush ending with a nice pitch drop and what sounds like 
an exhalation through the trombone from Kibril. If you listen to it, you'll hear it. I was wondering what that was. (laughs) Kind of like a decompression suit or something like that. Um, I'm not sure if it was intended, but it made it on the record. So I thought this is a subtle and pretty collection of songs uh, that capture the softer side of Brazilian uh, musical sounds. Kibril's trumpet takes on a more vocal role and character. Uh, that matches the subtlety that all the musicians show uh, with a real love for this style of music. So, yeah, it's a very uh, kind of gentle uh, vibe, uh, beautiful timbre, uh, nice rhythmic, uh, subtle playing rather than, uh, you know, overly enthusiastic or anything. And, uh, yeah, it's a nice uh, lazy day uh, listen to put you <laughs> in a guess. good mood, yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a good feeling album. I think subtle is the the key word here. It doesn't particularly come across as Brazilian, unless you um you know if you think because we think what bossa nova, yeah, samba, about, or something, and it doesn't but, sound anything like that. It's yeah. it's more it's like Milton Nascimento, like you yeah, said, but like exactly, jazz, yeah. it's really straight ahead jazz. So if you know those tunes, you'll think maybe oh Brazilian. Yeah. But it's a, yeah, like you said, it's a more subtle side of Brazilian. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a good kind of uplifting listen and a little yeah. and, and pretty gentle i liked it yeah 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 gentle listen uh but nice mm. again a nice trombone feature and um, trombone and uh yeah on that side so now uh we're gonna shift gears and we're gonna go to uh, a little more uh spicy latin <laughs> and we're gonna go but go to new york and uh new york. first we're gonna dive into some salsa oh, and boy. um this I don't is bringing know. back my salsa dancing That's days. That's right. I'm going to say, uh, listeners may not know it, but uh, Mike used to be a, uh, let's say, a mambo king uh, a mambo on the dance king. scene, the salsa dance scene in Japan. As the old lady in Woody Allen's movie Annie Hall says, I was quite a lively dancer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what happened? Uh, why did you give that up? Uh, uh, I'd rather not discuss that on the podcast. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I, hit the, a... the, I, I, I just kind of grew disillusioned with the, the scene, let's say. I hit a sore spot. No, it wasn't that. <laughs> <laughs> My shoes was driving me crazy. <laughs> Wasn't that a jerky voice? <laughs> was that, did he say that? Something like that. It was uh, my eyes, I think, but he brought all yeah. his shoes or something. Yeah. yeah. All right. Anyway. One of, it was one of Alvy Singer's aunts, yeah. <laughs> aunts in Woody in Annie Hall that said, I was quite a lively dancer. She's like this. Anyway, just this so old our Jewish woman knows that mm-hmm. uh, uh, Mike is an experienced salsa dancer. I am. And uh, yeah. So uh, if you hear, hear tell of his exploits on the salsa scene, you know, they're all true. anyway uh, here uh, we've got a a, a brand new another one uh, March 11th this came out uh, the uh, conga player or conguero I guess uh, conguero uh, as they say I uh, want to say like although I did salsa dance mm. I really don't know much about the music or the artists I know some of them but yeah. Uh, yeah, I didn't. I didn't go home and buy loads of salsa albums or anything like well, that. Well, you know, I uh, I don't know the intricate details of Latin music and the different rhythms and the yeah. regions. It's, a, it's a whole them, new but, world. All I know is I but, like but, them all. <laughs> so yeah, but yeah. there are a lot of there are a lot of them, and they're subtly yeah. different. And oh, yeah, you know, yeah. Latin people know them, but yeah, you know, exactly. I, don't, I 
I couldn't make them out. You know, yeah. you have to be from there to, to yeah. really, you know, I know those things. I think you were focusing on the ladies. Yeah, well, is that's that right? the thing. This is a funny <laughs> thing. I want I want to just tell people out there, if you are, yeah. if you start doing salsa dance or really any kind of dance, women start looking at you like you're, you're like a man, you know what I mean? Like you're somebody they want to be with. But when you do a podcast, they don't even know you exist. <laughs> Well, yeah. well, That's here's been your, my experience so far. Here's your chance to do a salsa podcast and get the best of both. Yeah, worlds. I'm going to do a salsa, a sound only salsa podcast. That'll be great. <laughs> anyway, here we are. Uh, it it was fun though. I enjoyed doing salsa. It was, I haven't done it in a long time though. Salsa parati, salsa for you. Yeah. Mike. There On you go. Ubiquity Recordings, the conga player Johnny Bless from New yeah. York. Uh, and his new recording. So, uh, Johnny Bus has been around for a long time in the world of Latin music, uh, 40-some years. Uh, he's uh, played with lots of uh, different uh, band leaders, Ray Barreto, Armando Peraza, uh, or, or rather he's influenced by Ray Barreto, and, but also by the jazz world. Uh, you know, he's... Uh, a multi-instrumentalist and on this recording we're going to hear him not only on conga and uh, percussion but also on sax and flute which uh, drew me to this uh, recording and uh, I thought uh, okay let's hear what's going on here and um, so I, I have to say that this album came out it's not available on CD yet and uh, from uh, Johnny Bless's website it says it will be available on vinyl uh, I don't know if it's going to make it to CD, and there's no album notes. Uh, well, however, if the DJs DJs are going to play CDs these days. They're not going to play vinyl at a salsa dance. Yeah. Club, so you know? um, anyway, from mm. uh, Jenny Bus's website, it says that current members of his band. That's what it mm. lists. This is not album notes, so this could be off. But uh, it uh, may uh, line up here uh, with what we've got. Uh, and I've got uh, some other notes from one uh, listening. Maybe I'll just go with that for the uh, solo ones because I'm not sure uh, on all the other band information because the album notes are not available. Anyway, I've got an interesting mixture here of music and uh, we're going to start with a track, uh, Berwin Stop 8, uh, which I guess is a stop in Chicago on... Uh, one of the lines. And uh, here, this is cool. Uh, I'm going to hear Bloss on uh, saxophone uh, and also uh, timpani, bongo, and uh, tumbadoras, uh, or congas, I guess, uh, here. Uh, so we get a great uh, conga intro, get you into this uh, salsa mix here. Uh, great groove building uh, over trombone lines. This album has great trombone lines because uh, mm. you've got uh, multiple uh, trombonists on it. Uh, great uh, trombone and sax solos uh, alternating with uh, verse lyrics. Uh, the trombones and rhythms break uh, before a piano solo by Yendris uh, Cispedes. Uh, lots of tasty percussion solo interludes. Uh, yeah, this is a slamming track, yeah. actually, as far as rhythm You should as, be uh, up and dancing goes. with all yeah. the ladies uh, right away. Uh, yeah. Now, I want to mention, this could eat, all of this stuff is like for the clubs, but yeah. really like with any kind of popular music, um, at the dance clubs, the most popular tunes are the ones that are they have vocals on them. They, they're, right. they're sung. These have vocals like in the choruses, but there's no soloist really usually. Right. But a lot of a lot of the big popular salsa songs will have a soloist. Yeah. 
uh, track two, El Conguero. This is um, by... It's a cha-cha uh, rhythm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Edwin Blass, uh, kind of mm-hmm. a, a soulful cha-cha uh, by Edwin Blass. Uh, we get uh, Venezuelan Robert Inseli on a great saxophone solo on here. Uh, and uh, we get a conga beat, uh, getting that cha-cha going with nice trombone uh, lines. Uh, Inseli's sax is like really more R&B and jazz infused mm. uh, more so than Latin, but it's cool. It's kind of ragged and rough, uh, yeah. gets things uh, whooped up. Uh, nice vocal insert change here. The only thing I don't care for on this track and some of the others, this uh, synthy string kind of backing. <laughs> I know yeah. that's part of a Latin music kind of thing. Eh. Uh, I, you know, synthy yeah, strings. I mean, being acoustic, uh, fans of acoustic yeah, music, yeah. You, know, you hear that and it's kind yeah. of... Uh... But, but the overall vibe is uh, really good. Uh, anyway, track three. This is an interesting one. Uh, Boranda. Now, originally, this is uh, a Brazilian pop song, uh, but uh, it was kind of uh, translated and transformed uh, by Ruben Blades uh, back in the 70s uh, on an album uh, that also has uh, Hector Lavoe, great uh, everyone who knows salsa music uh, knows him as uh, backup singing too and became part of like the salsa repertoire and so here a uh, really uh, cool arrangement of it uh, this has got uh, Yaoko Martin Padilla on vocals uh, Carlos Oriano on piano and uh, uh, Blas is on congas here a nice percussion intro big trombone entrance uh, with great harmonized trombone parts uh and uh, then uh, Padilla enters on vocals, but the trombones stay really big in the arrangement. It takes some twists and turns in the rhythms. Uh, the The whole tune's direction has some really unexpected harmonies. It's a good arrangement uh, with little piano interludes between verses. Uh, Ordiano gets a long piano solo. He keeps it kind of simple and rhythmic, uh, keeping people dancing. Uh, big trombones uh, bring back in the vocals and uh, some really... Uh, pounding salsa piano and this one stretches out eight and a half minutes long so it's a good one to get you out on the dance floor I would imagine uh, hmm. listen to it uh, now yeah. what lead, I like lead, the lead vocals way up front on that one by yeah, the way yeah it's really uh, up front <laughs> yeah um, so uh, I think uh, you know Bloss uh, is uh, you know from the Latin music world but he also has a, a jazz background too so he does include two uh, jazz standards on this album, which is a little bit of a diversion. Uh, if you look on his Facebook page, he has a couple of uh, uh, recorded videos where he talks about this album having lots of different kinds of music, and it's true uh, because here we get the uh, jazz standard, uh, usually done as a ballad, Never Let Me Go, uh, Jay Livingston and Ray Evans tune, and uh, Blast switches over to alto sax on here uh and he plays the jazz standard uh it's nicely styled to a latin beat uh blas himself has kind of a a tart alto kind of uh tone to his playing uh but he keeps it passionate he gets a high cry up into his short solo again there's some of that synthy string backing parts uh but otherwise it's a very uh, sparse arrangement uh in some parts it's uh, blas only soloing over just bass and the Latin percussion uh, with no harmony behind it. And it's short and sweet take uh, three, uh, about three and a quarter, three quarters minutes on this tune. 
Uh, track five, we get a Johnny Boss original Shytown part one. Uh, this is a nice, uh, intense mambo with a thick trombone arrangement. Uh, and here, Bloss switches over to flute. Uh, and uh, it's a nice flute solo. He actually makes it quite bluesy uh, over this mambo rhythm. Uh, Inceli is back with the rambunctious sax solo uh, that gets some trombone backing. And then Ordiano gets a uh, piano solo with lots of stretched out rhythmic figures with pauses. Uh, I think only real Latin players can do these convincingly. Yeah. And then the trombones come in uh, big for a final press to the end. Uh, continue with the Blas Originals, Danzong uh, for Rocchio, uh, slow Cuban style dance, uh, again with Blas on flute on this one. It's a pretty minor melody. It's kind yeah, of evocative. This is also a cha cha tempo. A cha yeah. the, the chords are a little bit evocative of like an autumn leaves kind of uh, minor progression, uh, mm. but it gets some more punch with percussion. Uh, as backing vocals come in and uh, Blas continues with uh, flute improvisations and we also get some nice uh, rhythmic piano work here. Yeah, I know a lot. You know, it's funny mm. talking about uh, salsa. I, I know a lot of the, the dance rhythms in Latin music, you mm. know, the cha-cha, the merengue, the, mm. you know, the, the mambo and all this stuff. But I don't know the American ones. Remember like things like the Charleston or the... Oh, right. <laughs> I, have, yeah. I have no idea what that rhythm is. You know, I just can't... Right. <laughs> Well, you know, have, what would make you do a try? I kind of know what it looks like, but I'm sort of... I wonder, you know, I guess those kind of briefly re-flourished in the 90s with the kind of swing revival, but yeah, that was they haven't cool. stuck around. Because like, in know, the I, 50s, I kids used to dance. It was kind of like a rite yeah. of passage. You had to dance with your girlfriend. Right. But we don't do that anymore. No, we it's don't. It's just sad, I think. Yeah. I, I would have liked to have known those dances. That could be yeah. a new, a new uh, dating app, you know, like, yeah. uh, you know. Yeah, dancing uh, kind of thing. Nah. Yeah. What am I talking about? What do yeah, I know? We should we should be dancing. That's a that's a good <laughs> way for yeah. boys and girls yeah. to get together. You know. Yeah. Next one. What you got uh, next? Yeah. Unfinished business. Yeah. Uh, this uh, kind of captivates with a uh, hypnotic uh, kind of rhythm. This is very. Uh, uh, kind of African in style uh, it's a nice groove that develops uh, flute and trombone arrangement are cool uh, the bones get a uh, repetitive riff that builds into a percussion jam over piano chords more cool trombone lines uh, Inceli comes back on the flute for some more improvised improvised improv, improvised lines improvised that's the word improvised lines uh, and uh, followed by more trombones and a piano vamp out with a final mystical flute line it's uh, hmm. kind of just a little african tag there uh, to yeah. show its roots uh yeah, this one's all about the rhythm and uh kind of a mystery to it then we get the title track number eight salsa para ti uh johnny Blas original uh this one has a really infectious groove piercing flute lines great trombone arrangement uh vasquez has an energetic trombone solo as well as uh Cispedes on piano uh this is a, a real fun one uh get you up uh, moving to the salsa rhythm uh nine baya que baya this is a, a tune uh by ovidio guerra and tomas martinez uh and this one features uh, daniel castillo on vocals uh this bursts out with uh, trombones, great descending bass line, uh, passionate vocals with nice 
harmonized backing vocals as well, and kicking trombone arrangements. Uh, nice percussion parts with timbales. The bass part gets down very deep and has some funky slaps uh, too, kind of like a funk bass <laughs> to it. And a nice flute here. I'm not sure who's playing it on this track, uh, but it's a nice addition. And uh, percussion and vocal breakdown with whistles <laughs> added to it. So uh, first time we hear that in here and uh, a nicely arranged trombone finish. Uh, so real stylish track with this one. Then we get uh, a final jazz <laughs> twist with an uh, interesting take on... Uh, yeah, this, this was an interesting yeah, take indeed. Yeah. Monk's Round Midnight. Uh, and so this is um, Bloss's brother, Edwin Bloss, who plays trombone on this recording, who has arranged this as uh, Guajira, uh, Cuban dance style. To yeah. round midnight, uh, so the intro comes in with a trombone arrangement, uh, and the rhythm shifts a little bit simpler, and then the trombone takes the melody. You won't know what's coming from the intro, uh, but it all leads up to the round midnight melody that becomes familiar when the trombone takes it, and then it gets uh, more arranged with other trombones added in, some more synth backing. Uh, the piano solo is rhythmic and simple, but I think maybe Monk would have liked it because, mm. uh, you know, he played rhythmic and relatively simple uh, lines that uh, were just kind of profound. It fades out and then it goes full uh, Wahira uh, style with the outro and uh, more trombone arrangement becoming completely Latin uh, on its own. So, yeah, kind of unique. You haven't heard Round Midnight like this before. Yeah, certainly and I, I certainly hadn't. <laughs> kind of as as an outro, uh, track 11, uh, Shy Town Part 2. Uh, it's similar to the Part 1. Uh, you just get more of the same because it was good. Uh, intense trombones again. More bluesy flute from Blas. Uh, Ian Selly gets some more uh, really intense sax. And Ordiano uh, takes some funky piano and it fades out. So I think this recording... Yeah, it's it's a little bit rough around the edges. Yeah, uh, I'd say too. But it's not uh, like a it's not like a like a hi-fi kind of recording. Yeah. It sounds kind of old, but yeah. they they want that obviously. You know? But it's very energetic and it uh, covers a broad spectrum of uh, Latin genres, mixing in a healthy amount of jazz, and uh, the vocals are kind of uh, inspired. Uh, you get a lot of different instrumentation with the uh, flute, some more intense and uh, jazzy sax than you'll usually hear on uh, yeah. kind of salsa in Latin. And you get these great trombones too, uh, with lots of great percussion because, you know, that's Blas's major thing. So it's kind of a fun uh, new recording. Check it out if you like salsa music and Latin music in general. Yeah, I thought this was really more of a salsa album than a jazz album. It just kind of, I just, I just picked up on all the dancey rhythms yeah, and stuff. Yeah. It could easily uh, be played in clubs, and I, I'm guessing that'll happen quite yeah, a yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah. I think mainly, mainly it is, but it just happens to have uh, these two uh, "Never Let Me Go" and "Round Midnight" uh, thrown right. in there. Uh, so uh, it caught my eye, and I thought, uh, yeah, it yeah. was kind of an odd, it was kind of an odd uh, excursion. Yeah. I thought, but yeah. yeah, it was enjoyable. Certainly yeah. high energy as far as a lot of yeah, the tunes go. Well, I got to yeah. say, um, spring has sprung here in Japan. We've been talking about spring, and uh, this mm. was my first night of not using the heater so, oh. since November, and I was all excited about that. But now it's <laughs> I'm getting cold. So oh. as you launch into the next uh, 
track, I'm just going to take the headphones off for a second and turn the heater on. So take it away. <laughs> oh, okay. Go make yourself warm. Uh, yeah. So we're going to go into uh, Distancia, which is the new release by Manuel Valera and New Cuban Express Big Band. Uh, so kind of a Latin big band release, brand new as well, coming out on March 18th. And as Mike turns on his heater, uh, we'll look back a little bit. We had featured uh, Manuel Valera and his uh, trio recording. This was back in episode 19. And that was uh, his recording live at uh, Diese Onze. Uh, do you remember that one, Mike? Uh, yeah, I'm back now, by the way. My yeah. heat is on. Sick of that. Uh, what was the question again? Do uh, I remember what? So we had uh, done one previous Manuel Valera uh, live recording. That was back in episode 19. Good God. Yeah. And, I'm trying uh, to think back. Uh, yeah. Anyway, we both liked I it. I don't remember. But, uh, so yeah. that was a, you know, a small group setting live. And uh, so Valera has been uh, Grammy nominated uh, in the past, worked with uh, Latin greats uh, Paquito de Rivera, Arturo Sandoval, uh, and others. And this is his second album with uh, New Cuban Express Big Band. Uh, and this kind of uh, modern Latin ensemble, it, it kind of encapsulates lots of uh, Cuban, Puerto Rican, and Brazilian rhythms together uh, into a, a kind of a cohesive modern sound. And I think the strength here is just the arranging and the awesome big band uh, that the the end product is amazing uh, on this album. Uh, and it features a lot of the great New York-based uh, uh, musicians who function in uh, jazz and uh, Latin world. And we get a lot of exciting uh, solos and things here. Now, I won't read through the whole list of uh, musicians because there's a lot <laughs> of them on different tracks. Uh, people switch out and whatnot. But it's all uh, available on uh, online uh on, on his site and uh, different sites as well. Just pick up who the soloists are in tunes here. Uh, so this is a really interesting album. It's actually kind of hard to describe this music because there's so much happening with the changing sections of the big band and the arranging is so great that it moves through uh, you know, different waves of sound constantly. So it's hard to put all of that into words. So I'll just try to give you a picture, but uh, this is a, also a long album. Uh, hmm. It's uh, an hour. Yeah, it was. It an was, hour and 12 it, minutes. So there's a lot of music here. And it's also, it's not, it's fairly complicated music in that there's a lot happening yeah. in it and a lot of changes. But yeah. it's, so it's got a fairly intellectual element to it, but it's not like hard to listen to music. I want to no, just no. make sure yeah. you understand that. It's all, it goes into the ear, but there's a lot of, there's a lot to hear. There's a lot <laughs> to hear, but it's all yeah. pleasing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it, does, it yeah. takes a little bit of a attention, let's say. Yeah. yeah. So uh, let's run through it. We've started out with uh, expect Expectativas. Expectativas. That's it. Yeah. That's what I wanted to say. Expectativas. I know you did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is like a, a building band chord and then a bass riff that's joined by piano. Uh, the horn section lines intersect, building this theme. Uh, it gets a driving Latin beat with tight cymbal work uh, on drum kit uh, with added Latin percussion. There's a new contrasting section 
that starts softer and builds up after the first theme. And then there's an intriguing repeated phrase inside of that. Uh, this is just one little detail of the great arrangement, but uh, it's doubled on trumpet and piano that ends in little trills. Uh, you know. And what I like in a lot of the arrangements is in the larger ensemble, he'll pick two instruments that come you know, in a unison theme that stick out. Uh, and this is the first instance of that that just caught my ear. Uh, there's an intriguing re uh, other repeated phrases too. Uh, a tart and fluid alto sax solo by Remy Lebeuf, getting some mm -hmm. angsty edge over drumming and Latin percussion. Uh, mm -hmm. A nice trumpet solo by Alex Norris, uh, followed by percussion breakdown uh, featuring uh, Samuel Torres on percussion uh, split up by kind of band and piano breaks that alternate and then the melody comes back in uh, to the full band arrangement so there's lots of thick sounds on all of yeah. these tracks uh, track two is Gemini this is a more of a jazz swinging beat kind of feel I won't say it's a it's a a real driving swing but it's got a swing feel that changes up to Latin sometimes in it it starts with a repeated piano note uh then a bass note until both take uh, flight uh, from those patterns uh, and the band joins in. The bass keeps the quarter note pushed forward as the band sections trade and swell uh, until things kind of fade away over sparse piano. Uh, Stuart Mack gets to build up a trumpet solo from that point. Uh, he works through some real modern harmonies as the groove comes back and then the horn lines come in for backing. Uh, here we get... Uh, Nice Barry sax solo, Andrew Gutoskas uh, on Barry sax. Uh, Valera gets some solo time after the Barry uh, for himself, impressing with dizzying runs. Uh, it resolves and transforms with some rising guitar lines and then moves into a new section with some kind of new lines with flute standing out as it works back into the original theme with a full band arrangement again. And then... Uh, Alex Goodman on electric guitar helps it settle down at the end with some spacey electric guitar phrases over uh, Valera's piano. Really great big band arranging. Yeah, one of the things about this track that kind of got me is whenever a new soloist would start playing, the accompaniment, the, the entire rhythm and the entire like rhythmic profile, the accompaniment would just completely change. Yeah. And I was kind yeah. of wondering if this, how that worked. I mean, it's it felt like the soli soloists were dictating the changing feel of the piece. Like yeah. usually, like the soloists will hear what the the band is doing and they'll play over that or the previous mm. soloists. But in this case, it felt like he would start playing and the the whole band would respond to that, which seems really an impressive. Yeah, it's like feat they had customized me. backgrounds for each solo yeah, section. That, yeah, that's a good description yeah. of what it was. That yeah. was interesting. It uh -huh. was an interesting track, Gemini. Give that a listen. This is yeah. your good sample track here. I yeah, think. good one. And you'll see what I mean by that. This is a, it's it's a complicated album in a sense. This is really, I think, what we mean by adult music. This it kind of keeps you on your toes, and you kind of have to be yeah. paying attention. There's to a it. lot to listen to here. Um, yeah, I would. I wish I had a few more listens before I could even talk about it because there's right. there's so much here. Track three is from afar. This one starts with uh, quiet and lush lines uh, arranged. And this is one, this is a really interesting feature of these arrangements. Uh, there's two vocalists on this album, and that's what they are. They're vocalists, they're not singers, because mm -hmm. they vocalize as 
another voice in the ensemble. And so here we have uh, Camila Meza, uh, and her voice is added as another sound in the big band uh, as part of the horns, uh, which also include many layers and different tones with mutes and uh, other sounds. So the voice, the human voice becomes part of this great mixture. Uh, a bass line emerges and starts a new section with an... Uh, now, if I... You could slap me if I'm wrong, but this sounded like an oboe to me, uh, unless it was someone who has like a, a really uh, uh, interesting sound on soprano sax. We do have bass clarinet and other things in here. There's no oboe listed, but uh, the the tone of this uh, instrument uh, really uh, you know threw me for a loop here. Uh, so there's no other could, high like uh, reed instrument no, listed. Not listed hmm. there. Only soprano sax, but. That doesn't sound like soprano sax to me. Hmm. Uh, anyway, it's super lush. There are little percussion textures added for nice effects. And then Meza's voice comes back in on a unison line with trumpet. It sounds really lovely. Uh, the intonation is almost perfect. And, and uh, they follow to these two voices in unison through the rest of the arrangement. Uh, it, it builds to a thicker arrangement with trombones and then the mutes come out for more open brass. Uh, they settle down. Uh, Michael Rodriguez gets a really nuanced, nuanced trumpet solo, taught lyrical phrases over deep, punchy electric bass lines uh, here. And uh, Rodriguez, by the way, uh, we did his uh, solo album Pathways in uh, episode 16. Uh, great trumpet player. Uh, and uh, part of this big band too so uh, you can go back and check out our old episode from last year and that release to hear more of his playing uh, nice horn backing lines that weave in to push Rodriguez on in his solo then the piece kind of works back into more lushness uh, with the voice uh, human voice added back in but this time uh, the deep bass and drums uh, keep up the intensity and add in to push it to a new section with hard driving piano solo from Valera. Uh, the drum and percussion groove is really intense. The horns and the voice come in for another layer over Valera's intense solo and then take over with the melody phrases to the end. And this is a real long musical journey, more than 10 minutes uh, for oh, this yeah. piece. Actually, so. all the tracks on this album yeah, are pretty really long, long and yeah. involved. Okay. So. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the, the charts for the big man, they must they must need like three music stands to open them up, you know. It's great. Um, this reminds me of a time, I don't know if I told this story on here before, but when I was in university playing in a big band, we had a couple guys from the Soon Ra Orchestra oh boy. show up. That must have been something. Yeah, so we were out near uh, Buffalo, and the, these guys came up, and so the, the, it was a, one of the trombone players and a drummer, uh, and so they had all these charts, and they brought them, and uh, but in, instead of using like standard musical notation and formation and having like codas, he had yeah. inserts. So <laughs> you would get to the end of like these many pages, and, and then he would say, "Okay, go to the blue insert." <laughs> what? <laughs> so, yeah, the music would stop, and we'd be fumbling around for these pages, you know. And we were really cool. Like, we're really playing Soon Ra's music. Oh, this is you know, right. great. So we have to find the blue, so we got the blue, and then you get to another. There's another mark, you know. The next is like the silver insert. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we got to the final insert. It turned out that he left it on the hotel bed 
and we didn't have it so we couldn't finish the piece you know so <laughs> there were these incredibly long you know pieces you have to spread them out over you know get uh, them all over I the wonder, floor and stuff i wonder if that was what playing the Sun Ra orchestra was like you know? i have no idea yeah oh, i left it on i left that piece on my bed like we can't play it tonight <laughs> oh, no. well they were cool guys anyway but never got to finish Not that bad. piece so yeah I remember right, you, uh, but did you ever see the Sun Ra orchestra the orchestra Orchestra not live, no. He was, yeah, you know, they were great. They were just, it was like a real mm. oh, uh, event because yeah. in college we loved them, even though we weren't really that into jazz because they'd come up in the, uh, they, they they had a name for their kind of bus. It was like a spaceship. <laughs> like, it, yeah, it yeah, kinda, spaceship. Kinda, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The, the arc, the orchestra yeah. would come in and they would all claim to be from outer space. Right, so it was right. really cool. The whole vibe was just really yeah. fun. It was really great. It's very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Mm. Oh. I think he yeah, made more albums than like anyone else in jazz. Like, it's this possible. Is like, yeah. his, uh, his discography is un- ridiculously long. Unreleased things are still coming out these days. So. Yeah. All right, uh, back to this uh, release here. Anyway, uh, number four is Pathways. Uh, rhythmic piano figure started out. There's tight cymbal work, and uh, it's get added to a sax line. It's joined by Camila Meza on vocalizations again, and I like how her voice gets. Uh, unison lines with different instruments here as well. The arrangement swells to a full band power with great low-end berry sax uh, in uh, the arrangement. Things quiet for a tenor sax solo by Jeremy Powell. Then swelling backing lines with flute add a nice touch. There's a little interlude with more flute lines and a bass solo by uh, Hamish Smith over the rhythmic figures of Valera. And then we get stacked trombones and vocalization backing uh, for the bass uh, that's nicely arranged. A new section featuring vocalization works back to the original theme idea with punchy trombones added to the right and saxes to the left channel. Um, It builds up to some drum feature time for Jimmy McBride while Valera keeps the chords going on piano. And then the horns jump back in for some stabbing lines and uh, Meza's voice is added, building to a final, fully arranged finish. Track five, From the Ashes. It's a rhythmic piano and percussion intro layered with horn lines, dense with flutes and mutes, and big accented syncopated bass. Uh, this sets up Valera for a little spotlight before the horn sections come in again, building into a climax that releases for a trombone solo by Matt McDonald. Uh, He starts out sounding a bit lonesome, but a huge kicking beat in the bass and drums drive him to funkiness. Uh, Things settle down for some piano from Valera. Uh, The driving beat gets going again, and he responds with fiery lines zigging and zagging up and down the keyboard. Uh, The horns come in for backing and launch into some full power and funky full phrases uh this works into a soprano sax solo from michael thomas and he strangles the goose here intense he goes, phrases. He goes for that <laughs> yeah. he goes for that snake dance yep strangles yeah. it a bit sounds cool uh rapid figures uh over the uh, under this soprano sax solo man the the drummer sets this killer groove uh this rhythm section really knows how to lay it down uh, and the horn backing comes in again behind the solo, as we've seen through all the tunes so far. Uh, the final section uh, gives Valera another little piano interlude before building to the end with some muscular brass lines. Uh, and it ends with a really harsh chord, which is very cool. <laughs> yeah. Very cool tune. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, I, I like that. I just got the impression like of this goose, you know, you just grab its neck and what kind of sound does it make? <laughs> <laughs> you can do that on soprano, you know? Yep. Yeah. Oh boy. Uh, six is kind of an interesting, uh, different type of tune. Impressionistic romance. It seems to be all built around this kind of dizzy little riff figure that the piano introduces right in the beginning. Uh, it then becomes a basis for horn lines that come in. Uh, the rhythm in this piece is really strange. It starts out in like a 7-4 pattern. Then it changes to 8 beats or either two groups of four and and then back again uh, throughout the piece. Uh, so the rhythm changes up. It's kind of hard to follow. Uh, that figure, the original riff, gets passed around through different sections throughout the piece and built upon. Uh, trombone lines in here are huge and thick uh, because the ensemble features also a bass trombone and that is a beast in this recording it'll really come out and punch you between the eyes uh, on some of these lines <laughs> um, the horns settle out for a piano solo by Valera and the bass picks up the riff for a tease underneath his solo uh, that riff idea is constantly going to be reminded uh uh, to you throughout the piece. Valera's really fueled up with ideas on this one. Uh, rapid fire, stop and start phrases, adventurous harmonies, snappy rhythms. Uh, the band comes in again uh, to build it up after a brief hold. There's like a little fermata in the piece. Then yeah. Valera restarts uh, with the riff again. Uh, the band arrangement works around the melody once more with the riff reappearing. Uh, I like the drum snare work underneath when the band gets uh, that riff. He sort of brings up the tension on the drums. Valera gets a harmonized version of the riff again, and then the band layers the harmonizations with thick trombones to riff out as Valera spins off uh, counter lines. Uh, building little lines to finish. Uh, so, yeah, I guess it's impressionistic. It, it works off from this riff idea and sort of explores the possibilities uh, in uh, different rhythmic and harmonic ways. So, interesting track. Uh, okay. Then we get a uh, title track, tune number seven, Distancia. Uh, this one starts with pretty piano cascades into a rubato solo theme. It's slightly melancholy feel to it. Uh, the band comes in rapping uh, with soprano sex solo line uh, and uh, vocalizations. Uh, we've got a different uh, vocalist here. Bonya Kicinska, hmm. I think. <laughs> it's a tough one to pronounce, yeah. Uh, it's lush with flutes in unison with guitar and sax and then voice and trumpet weaving lines. It, the tempo and rhythm feels like a loping slow waltz, uh, maybe six eight or three four. Uh, hard stuff, but it's uh, in groups of three. Uh, thicker and uh, kind of dense sax and trombone lines build it up and then disperse for uh, a soprano solo by uh, Charles Pillow. Uh, this is really nice. He has a dreamy melodic improvised lines with a wistful tone. Uh, trades it over to uh, Mike uh, Fahey or Fahier, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, uh, for a trombone solo. Starts with some really uh, rapid fire but softly articulated notes and seducing bends. Uh, he works up to a call in the high register, then he dives down for some lower intervals, uh, works around the 
uh, trombone a bit, and he adds a long yearning high note uh, towards the end. Interesting trombone solo. Uh, the theme comes back with lush orchestration around uh, Kikinska's voice and Valera working rhythmic figures and chords underneath. Uh, the phrasing rhythms change up for the kind of ending section, which sounds like a coda because it's rather different from the original piece in it, but it stays lush to the end. Uh, so interesting uh, title It reminded me here. a little bit of a Maria Schneider track. It yeah, yeah, very like dense that. and moving yeah. lines intersecting, lots right. of things going on. Yeah. Um, and we end up with Remembered. Uh, this one starts with a funky bass and guitar intro. It gets stacked and syncopated, uh, muted trumpets and open trombones, making stabbing lines that come in over weaving sax lines. This is all these layers on this whole album. It's really hard to talk about all the things that go on at once. Right. It chills out a bit for Valera to come in with a piano theme doubled in the muted trumpets. Uh, so here you get piano and trumpet working the same kind of idea. Uh, this works into a full band arrangement again. There's some nice light conga and percussion backing going on. Then uh, Alex Goodman gets some echoey futuristic guitar solo lines. They sort of descend from uh, 50s science fiction uh, into here. Uh, kind of interesting contrast. Then we get uh, Andy Clausen on trombone. He gets some kind of bullfrog-like uh, trombone lines. Uh, working uh, intervals, uh, tricky rhythmic figures, uh, multiple tonguing and pitch bends. Uh, another unique trombone solo. That segues into another new section with interesting horn lines that go from muted to open brassy ideas. Uh, another trumpet solo uh, by David Smith here, uh, who spaces out kind of rhythmic lines and shows a brighter tone. And then a uh, tricky new woodwind line works into the final full band section to the big finish, punctuated by heavy drum hits and Latin percussion. So uh, in some, I, I think you need to listen to this album a lot to pull out everything that's in here, but it's an exciting recording. It shows great arranging. Uh, almost an orchestral sense of multiple instrumentation and timbre possibilities. Uh, we've got a whole uh, woodwind section that can play multiple instruments, flute, bass, clarinet, clarinet. Uh, we've got different mutes in the trumpets and trombones, including bass trombone, human voice added in as just another uh, line in the mix. And then uh, Valera uses a variety of modern Latin rhythms to give a kind of big scale uh, rhythmic palette uh, that creates different sort of emotions and feelings that vary according to the piece and direction of each uh, section of the composition. Uh, Valera's solos are energetic and creative. He gives a lot of uh, the other members of his band solo spaces uh, to show off their unique musical personalities. And as Mike mentioned, the backing for the solo seems to be customized almost to what's happening uh, in their little spotlights. Uh, so I think this recording just needs repeated listening to pull out all the unique things. Uh, it's uh, a masterpiece of big band arranging and uh, very enjoyable material. So, uh, yeah, it's Latin, but it's more jazz uh, influenced and uh, it's sort of, 
I, I think it's hard to classify uh, what it exactly is, but uh, it's a large ensemble uh, with great arranging and also nice soloists uh, that stand out. So give it a listen. Yeah, I was going to say this is this isn't it's Latin musicians, but it's not a Latin sounding. Album. Not overly, it's, no. It, yeah. Yeah, it's and it's you, know, you can't really call it swing either. It's a lot of styles and the approaches, the individual tracks are pretty complexly uh, organized, arranged. Everything about this um, mm. requires a bit of a attention and a heightened consciousness, I think. Um, when we called this podcast, like I said earlier, adult music, I think we were thinking about music like this. This mm. really is music for adults. Kids aren't going to get this. No, uh, it's, no. It's just complicated. It takes patience. It's going to take a few listens. And it's all enjoyable. Mm. It's not hard to approach, but once you're in it, you, you you know it's it's gonna be uh it's gonna just a lot your, there i mean there's, here, yeah. there's so many instruments and just picking out what you're listening to is yeah. is an exercise you know oh right you know there's a there's that bass trombone oh what's that and uh next and next and identifying the tonal colors is an exercise in itself yeah yeah um all right and speaking of tonal colors i think we're gonna have to turn the pink neon sign off for this week until until our next episode. <laughs> I was trying yeah. to come up with some kind of a metaphor there. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got uh, yeah. some Latin works. Um, we've got a lot of trombone. We got? We've got, we got a uh, lot of trombone. We got a rite of spring with a, a big band. A, ja a, a jazz rite of spring, kind of. We've got a bassoon feature. Where are you going to get that? Um, yeah. Oh, by the way, I should mention that's on the. I didn't mention the label. That's Atma Classique, the. Uh, oh. Jean-Cour. I, I got to get better at that. I got to <laughs> name all the labels. And of yeah. course, Ritual by Jim McNeely was on Double Moon Records. Double Moon. That's especially, right. you want to especially mention those smaller labels. Right. You know. Yeah, we want to encourage these labels that uh, get out music that might not be heard in other places. So uh, do check right. out. All the links and information are available yeah, there, as I, we said. I'm all small label this week. Yeah. Next week will be a little different, I think. <laughs> All right. Uh, any hints for next week? Yeah, I've got. I haven't really decided yet, though. But I have. Um, well, we liked um, John Wilson's recording of Respighi. Remember that? Mm -hmm. It was mm -hmm. a fantastic Super Audio CD, and yeah, he's got a new yeah. Super Audio CD of uh, Ravel's orchestral work. So I figure we'll do that. Okay. And I've got, a, I think, a harp recording as well, like a solo mm. harp. I think we have, we do one or two of those a year. <laughs> this one came out, and it's oh, oh, pretty yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah, maybe okay. something for, for Lent, uh, the Pergolesi Stabat Mater that I mentioned earlier right. in the uh, episode. I guess those are the three we'll do for classical okay. next week. All yeah. right. I'll try to I match something. I don't want to hit you too hard with the vocals, but Stabat Mater, this particular recording features uh, Jodie DeVos, the uh, she of the sweat, the yellow sweater from last year's oh, episode. About, right, you know, right. Yeah. So she's the one of the two soloists on that. Right, Okay. I'll have to so decide. Now, to... So I, I've left the heater off. It's on now, but I've I left it off enough to get a runny nose. I didn't think it was going to get this cold <laughs> at night because when we started, it was nice and warm and sunny, and now it's nighttime. <laughs> yeah, it's going to get cold again this week a little bit. That's the way it is here in Japan as we break into spring, right. and then it'll get sweaty really soon. Oh yeah, um, but I like that. I like the sweatier. I like that uh, better than the winter cold. Okay. To be honest, I don't know. You'll I peeled myself move. out of my chair. You'll, You'll have to move to Florida when you retire. Go down to Boca yeah. de la Vista. 
Okinawa Vista, or maybe Thailand. I don't know. Thailand would be massages, yeah, get that. massages every day of my life. Right. You know, although not anymore. Because I remember when I first started going to Thailand, everything was really cheap. But that's not the case. It's not now. cheap it's anymore. Sort of, uh, yeah, it's not. It's kind of too, which is too bad. It used to be. Uh, you would throw money around and everybody would be happy about that. But now they still want you to do that. But you can't because it's just not – everything's gotten more expensive now. Yeah, I don't know where you can go. Yeah. Well, anyway, we'll, we'll figure out world, those problems in the future. Expensive. The whole mm. world is expensive. But podcasts yeah. are free for the time being. They are for the time being. So join us again next week for episode 57 of Adult yeah. Music of – some new releases for you again. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned before, the complete podcast uh, listening list uh, on Deezer, the playlist, uh, we get up a week early. So I'll have that up tomorrow after I put my picks with mics together. So if you want to listen to things a week early, uh, you can check that out uh, a day after the podcast is released. And that's only available on Deezer. So, uh, so how many albums are we going to have up on these links this week? Like four or something? <laughs> hmm? You know, can you get links to all these recordings? I, yeah, I, yeah, that, for that sure. we talked about? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah we'll right. have them all up there. And uh, you right. can check them all out. And uh, please, uh, as we uh, said, if you like the episode, uh, do like or subscribe on whatever platform you're on. And uh, check us out on Facebook. You can find us there now. Just search for Adult Music Podcast. And if you'd like to get in touch with us uh, directly, our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks again for our new neon logo to Fast Signs of Staten Island, New York. Uh, I hope yeah. lots of people see it because it's all on Apple Podcasts and Podbean this week, so I hope it catches some eyes. Yeah, it certainly catches my eye when I put my Apple Podcast, you know, thing up. It just stands out. Stands it's just out. That pink, yeah. just uh, that's right. Catches your eye. I like it a lot. Good work, everything, everybody. Right. I did get some odd, you know, people. People are kind of puzzled by it. They say, "Say, oh, it looks like a like an adult movie." You're like, yeah, that's, that's the what idea. It's supposed to look like that's the yeah. idea. Because we're, yeah, we're not you, talking about uh, classical music or and jazz like we're snobs. Yeah. We're talking about it like we're kind of... the podcast you listen to the, when... The no, when, seedy adults that we are. When when <laughs> nobody else is looking. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that, yeah. that could be a logo. That's good. That could be our logo, yeah. 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 All right. Um. <laughs> I have to put some more thought into that. Yeah, it yeah, could be a new that's marketing quite, slogan. That's quite good. Yeah. Yeah. All right, folks, until next week, then keep listening and we'll see you again next time. <laughs>